Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Hey, this is Jerry. And this is Sean. And you are listening to another episode of the Great Expectations Podcast. We are here today, this Saturday, at the Livonia Civic Center Library for their first annual genre con. We've got guests all over the place, all kinds of genre fiction. It's exciting. We're here with a comic shop and our good buddy Austin Shu and his Aust Jericho paper action figure products selling at the table next to us it's very exciting and um we are have set down here to talk about some comics that are really near and dear to my heart and that is the new mutants graphic novel and issues one through three of the new mutants all drawn by bob mcleod and written by chris claremont and very excited to let you know that later in this episode we will bring you an interview with Bob McCloud himself, talking about his time drawing those issues. We're going to have to time travel because he's not actually at the Livonia Genre Con. It would be cool if he was. I asked them to invite him. I begged, practically, because I'm a slappy for Bob McCloud. <laughs> but it didn't happen. So, uh, we'll bring that to you later. But first, we are going to start with a little bit of pre-story for the New Mutants. This is the first appearance of Karma, the young leader of this first iteration of the New Mutants team. Um, <laughs> Sean's copy is disintegrating before our eyes. We're talking about, of course... X-Men! Marvel team-up. Number 100, double-sized special issue featuring Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. So, Sean, rather than go page by page like we usually do, we're going to make our best effort to give you the nutshell summary of what happened and then go into some more detail about some of the cooler aspects of the issue. So, basically, what you have here, folks, is right at the beginning, a mysterious shadowed foe takes possession of Spider-Man's mind. He puts up a good fight, more than most people do, for this person who seems to have experience with possessing people. But she she or he, it's hard to tell, they have this weird looking bowl cut, you can tell from their profile, yeah. but uh, they take, do eventually take possession of his body and kind of play around with his, his abilities, um, catching you up to speed in case you live in a closet and you don't know what Spider-Man is capable of showing what he can do and, and showing this assailant what he can do and it turns out he is the perfect host to accomplish this person's task and this person of course turns out to be Sean Koi Man 
also known to those of you who are New Mutants fans like I am as Karma, one of the founding members of the New Mutants. So uh, the reason she's possessed Spider-Man is because her evil uncle, who is a Vietnamese warlord who has uh, relocated to the U.S. and has become very wealthy because he has exploited Karma and her, and mostly her twin brother, uh, Tran, who has the the has identical powers to her. She, yes. they can possess the mind of anyone, pretty much, unless they have you know somebody Professor X's skill could probably ward off this possession. But they take possession of your mind and pretty much erase any existence of your personality and replace it with their own until they're done with you. So her uncle has grown rich off of this and is trying to extort her into performing the kinds of services that her brother does and is holding their younger siblings hostage in an effort to leverage uh, compliance from her. Yes. So she breaks into his mansion. No. Well, it's apartment building. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, the Freedom Towers. Yes. Which has been converted into luxury condominiums. And, um, and attempts to to free her uh, brother and sister. But unfortunately for her, <laughs> at this party, by invitation, are the Fantastic Four. And a gun is fired in an attempt to stop Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four run in. And they... It seems uncharacteristic for Spider-Man, but he seems to be kidnapping some kids and they want to put a stop to it. So there's a, a fight. And... Um, during the fight, Tran reveals that he has these possession powers as well, and he kind of unknowingly boots Karma from Spider-Man's body by tr attempting to possess him himself. Yes. And Spider-Man's kind of like, where am I? How did I get here? What's going on? And just as he's waking up, the thing clocks him. He wakes up in the Baxter building on a couch. They, they wake him up by giving him hot chocolate. Seems yeah. to be the thing to do. In the Marvel Universe. Clearly there must have been some editorial mandate that was like, kids can't get hooked on coffee. Everybody's going to drink hot chocolate. In his defense, it doesn't actually say hot chocolate. But we're just going to assume, man, for this show. like, Shit, have some of Sue's hot chocolate, Spider-Man. It'll make you feel better. Are you kidding Whoa. me? Lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> there is no way it actually says hot chocolate on there. Oh my god, this is hashtag hot chocolate, you guys. Oh my god. You you don't even need to hashtag X-Men anymore. Is Alan coming on the show? Oh, we did talk to Alan you earlier. You did just say hashtag hot chocolate. Oh, you're not wrong. That dude's been working out. It shows. New Mutant is hot chocolate all the way. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, we we want everyone to know that while we were here at the Genre Con, we did want to have Alan join us in conversation by Skype, but there were some technical challenges, and I hope we didn't hurt his feelings too bad by getting his hopes up that he could talk with his sexy man, Sean, again, and then pull the rug out from under him, but that's the way these things go. It's a bit of a bummer. He'll be back. Plenty of uh, plenty of new mutants to talk 
to New Mutant about. It does feel like... Now, we know we're going to have him on to talk about Paul Smith X-Men because that's yes. his jam. But it would be a travesty to never talk New Mutants with New Mutant. It's true. That's just the way it is. So, Spider-Man comes to... Um, and they're running some tests to try to figure out what happened to him. What had happened? And uh, Dr. Richards, Mr. Fantastic, winds up calling the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters to talk to Charles Xavier. So he wants um, he wants Xavier's help. Uh, He's detected mutant energy yes. in the scan of Spider-Man. <clears throat> and this, this was weird to me, Sean, because Professor X is like, Oh, that's really interesting, as he's conducting a, a danger room exercise for the X-Men. So this is before, where we're at in our reread now is the X-Men are in space and Professor X has presumed them dead. Yes. When we get to the New Mutants issues that we're going to talk about, which come like a year and a half or two years later, he thinks they're dead because they've been abducted by the brood. But, I did um, find this scene to be... Um pretty comical because it shows Xavier talking on the phone and every panel is uh, one of the X-Men in a danger room session and it just you can tell that Xavier's half answering Reed's question and then half yelling at the students trying to it just feels like it's very much like a hey kid that's reading this Spider-Man Fantastic Four issue if you think these heroes are cool you should go check out their monthly book and in the the writer of this issue would have a reason to do that because we we skipped right over this. This was written, ladies and gentlemen, by Chris Claremont. With art by Frank Miller. Yeah, let's not overlook that. Because I'm sure you all hopefully, maybe not Wasgo, but uh the rest of you will know who Frank Miller is. Because you don't know who Bill Sinkevich is, why would we assume That was that was Oh it wasn't Wasgo. Sorry Cameron. That was, that was Shane. Ah, you know, you Canadians all look the same to me. I'm not even going to lie. Was it Kevin? I don't know. <laughs> Canada shout out, everybody! Jerry's uh, drunk at the Livonia Library. <laughs> <laughs> These things happen, man. It's it's uh, While it's busy, it's not busy enough to keep me from drinking. Books do things to Jerry. I'm high on the, the fumes from this uh, dissolving glue. So, uh, Xavier basically says not really going to help out. Which then cuts to the... Keep fantasy. me posted. Yeah, keep me posted. Keep me in the loop. If it's a cool mutant, let me know. But if it's skin... If I haven't discovered it first with Cerebro, I ain't interested. Right? That's the lesson. So then we cut to the Fantastic Four and the Fantastic Car. Love the Fantastic Car. Spider-Man in the sidecar. All of a sudden they do what every superhero should do at least once in their life, which is smash through a church. Yes! You got superhero in business to do. You... Church be damned. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And uh, when they finally find this mysterious assailant who is revealed to be Sean. Um, and they're fighting her, and she's fighting them off. And it takes the priest to be like, Yo, dudes, look around. Do you not see where you are? And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, now we'll, we'll listen. We'll listen to this poor girl. And find out what what had happened. And unfortunately, they are probably in for more of a story than they expect. Yeah. Because it's flashback time, ladies and gentlemen. And Frank Miller is going to go into some stylized, pencil-shaded, monochromatic flashback of 
what brought Sean to this point. I'm gonna I'm gonna bum everybody out here, but I for the longest time have not been the biggest Miller fan. Um, I don't think his art's bad. It's just never really been one of those things where I'm like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, but I have to admit that this particular flashback with Shan's past is beautifully done, but it is heavy. It is heavy. Uh, the idea is that her father was a, a military man. He was a colonel in the South Vietnamese Army. This book came out in 1980. Okay, so this is just a handful of years after the Vietnam War finished. And uh, for those who don't know, the South Vietnamese Army was on the wrong side of history as far as victory goes. Um, the North Vietnamese won. Uh, he was in a bad place. They were taken captive, but not before Sean first used her power, discovered that she had this possession power, and possessed a North Vietnamese soldier that was about to capture her. Her brother Tran discovers he has the same power and possesses the dude and has him bash his own head in on a pole. It is a brutal scene. Like, the way that it's drawn, just you can see he's, like, clutching his hands around the pole, this, like, wooden pole, and you can just tell that he is about to full force just blast his face open into this wooden thing. It's not good. I can tell you from experience that I do that at work almost every day, and it's not as bad as you would think it is. Yeah? Yeah. What's the worst you've ever got hit in the face, Jerry? Ooh. Besides right now. Ah, <laughs> oh, my face! My worst was uh, I got a baseball bat in the face. That was worse than getting your teeth knocked out? Yeah, we getting my teeth knocked out sucked, but, well... Now, was this an intentional bat to the face? No, it was like I stood up at the wrong time as a kid was doing, like, a follow-through <laughs> swing when we were in, uh, I was playing catcher. <laughs> and I always knew you'd be a catcher. And I, oh, you bastard. <laughs> and I got racked in the face with a baseball bat. Still looked damn good, though. Getting my teeth knocked out was not a good feeling. But I think the baseball bat to the face was the worst one. I imagine it was. Where'd you catch it? Cheek? Side of the face, yeah, like lower jaw. Oh, man. bum out. Didn't that, break it. That's like a knockout hit. Oh, yeah. You get hit to the jaw, that's knockout oh, yeah. territory. You're a man, Sean. That was tough. That was a tough little kid. And I'm not going to lie, guys. There there have been some young ladies at this show who have been, like, looking over at my co-host, and I'm not liking it. He belongs to me today. You can have him later. For now, he's mine. So just move on. Go about your business. Jerry's talking about the eight-year-old dressed up like Doctor Who. Yeah. She was like, I'll bet he's into me. And it's kind of true. It's Maybe not in that way. The Fez. The Fez, yeah. <laughs> the second she walked in the room, Sean was like, Jerry, Jerry. I was like, you know I don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, she made um, Austin from Aust Jericho did a, um, at noon, he did a, uh, a class on teaching people how to make paper action figures. And so they all made Halloween ornaments of these little intricate skeletons. And she put a fez on hers and a bow tie. Yeah. It's adorable. I, You know, I can't lie, it's pretty adorable. But the sad reality is, at the end of the day, there's a costume contest. And my daughter, my sweet daughter Chloe, has a handmade Captain Marvel costume that my wife made for her around Halloween last year. She's nearly outgrown it. This will probably be the last time she's going to wear it. Well, so this is her last chance at victory. 
And I'm looking at your Doctor Who as direct competition. Uh-oh. It's a well, threat. That's what it is. I can tell is. you this much. If she doesn't win the costume contest, she at least can take solace in the fact that she's won her hearts. She can. She sure can. Huh. So, Where were we? So, oh yeah, so um, they, so this Tran kid murders this North Vietnamese soldier who had it coming, clearly. I don't know well, what Shan's all worked up about. She's a good guy. She is. There is some imagery at work here. I don't know if it was Claremont or Miller, but um, later they're going to be wearing these tunics, matching tunics, just happen to be wearing matching tunics, that ha- both have half of the yin and yang symbol on And I think the idea is that he represents the yang and she is the yin. Can I, can I, uh, um, the, in the following panel after the soldier smashes his head in, it discusses the fact that um, Tran is basically smiling while this happens and how it scares uh, Shan. And as a quick digression, when you were growing up, did you ever come across a kid where, like, you were buddies with him and then all of a sudden you saw something and you were like, oh, no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Like, I can never be friends with this person again. Like, that weird... Not quite that far, but I was like, we... Yeah, I, I'm i going to stop hanging out with this guy so much. Yeah. He's getting me into trouble a lot. Because I had one of those, too, <laughs> where it was like, it was somebody in my... Knee, barely even remember because it he was started such... pulling wings off a fly and yeah, it was like legs off a thing cat where i was just like you know <laughs> we don't really we're not really we might be the same age but i think we're two different people yeah i think i'm gonna have to slowly back myself out of this situation that's what same i thought planet, of when i saw different that. worlds yeah Nobody bashed anybody's face in or killed any animals, but it was just one of those things where, like, that was the kid that wanted to, like, oh, let's go kick over this mailbox. And he's yeah. like, I'm going to have to come back later and put that mailbox together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had those two. Dance. So, the flashback gets, unfortunately, progressively worse. Uh, Tran is then, uh, kind of looked after after the uncle and the tramp. Oh yeah. Well I mean this is this is the the meat of the story. Yes. This is the origin part. And yeah, I mean Tran's uncle Tran and Shan's uncle, they rhyme those names rhyme. They rhyme people. They're twins. They have rhyming names. That's what you do with twins. So he discovers that they have this power and he kind of takes Tran under his wing because he willingly uses it. He gets off on controlling people. And Shan thinks it's a bad thing, so she doesn't want to do it. He ends up... The uncle takes them all to the U.S. together. And uh, decides he's going to use the kids, the younger siblings, as leverage to try to force her to, uh, to use her power for his game. And if she continues to refuse, if she won't serve him in that way, he says, she'll serve me in another way. And... Um, we kind of get the idea of what that way is going to be because of the human trafficking element of this story. But prior to all of that, they try to escape from South Vietnam, becoming members of the boat people and trying to escape on boat, and they're set upon by Thai pirates who kill Shan's father and all the other men on board um, and do worse to the women and children. But they, they do manage to get away from that. Are they saved by U.S. sailors or something like that? 
I don't remember. I remember seeing a battleship. Um, yeah, but I don't know if it was really... Um, they were sent to America and reunited with okay. their uncle. The mother didn't survive once they were rescued due to just everything that had been done to her. Yeah. And, um... The uncle didn't have much compassion, and like Jerry said, sent them off to, uh... Basically, she, he wanted... The uncle wanted to do the you know, trafficking thing, so she took off with the, uh... Her two younger siblings, Leong and Naga, and uh, went to a church, but realized that the children... One day she came home, realized that the church had been ransacked, and the children kidnapped. So she came up with a plan. She'd been reading... In the Daily Bugle from that damn J. Jonah Jameson. This is this is so good. This yeah. just exploiting the, the mythos of Spider-Man here. I love this. She saw that he was a menace, so she assumed that if he took over and possessed a criminal, and that criminal fought other criminals, that, you know, you kill two birds with one stone. No, no good people would be harmed because Spider-Man's a bad guy, so if he gets shot while I rescue my uh, younger siblings, not that big of a deal. So then you have a, a good panel later on in the book of Spider-Man shaking his fist in the air at J. Jonah Jameson for putting him on this uh, path. <laughs> so they take it upon themselves to then the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man go and help rescue the younger siblings. Um, and based on um, Shan's experience trying to possess Spider-Man, you figure they're probably going to have a pretty easy time because she struggled. To even control Spider-Man, and now there's five of them, so they should be able to handle the situation. Yes, the train's pretty powerful. Yeah, so he's able to possess most of them, the entire Fantastic Four at once, yep. and have them all fight Spider-Man very proficiently. And the only reason he he doesn't possess Spider-Man is because he wants to see the Fantastic Four tear Spider-Man limb from limb because he's a sicko. Yeah. It's kind of cool. I, I don't know if you picked up on this. He's in the same spot. There's a, a long panel that goes across the top. And he's in the same spot on three consecutive pages. It's That's pretty uh, cool. It's him with Shan in the foreground kind of uh, sprawled on the ground because uh, he took her out first. But he's like, he's, he's sitting kind of Indian style or whatever and he's, he's cross-legged and he's levitating. I don't... Yeah. What is that? That's never explained. I don't... How it, can he do that? It looks awesome. It does look cool. And his whole body... For those of you familiar with Karma, whenever she possesses somebody, they do this cool, like, marker effect um, where there's, like, a jagged halo around her head and then a beam that leads to the other person's head and the same jagged halo around them. But So right now he's got an aura around his whole body that's, that's similar to that. And I guess the force of that power being exerted is making him lift off the ground. Or whatever. Yeah. But he's tearing it up. And finally, it's it's Shan who says, I have to end this. And she takes him out. Yeah. He, he doesn't think she's capable of doing it. And maybe it's because he's already possessing four other people and that's weakened him. But whatever is going on, she has the force of will to overcome him and she basically draws she turns him into obi-wan it's like when darth vader cuts obi-wan in half and all that's left is the cloak it's the same thing like his body just disapparates yeah and she pulls his soul into her body 
And as I mentioned before, they each have half of the yin and yang symbol on their, their tunic. And once he's gone and she's absorbed him, you see both halves kind of form on, on her tunic. And I, I guess the idea is, Claremont and Miller conceived it, is that they were twins who were opposite halves of this yin and yang idea. And now they're like a complete package. Like yes. both halves are together in one body. Um, I'm trying to, I feel like we've seen this in Claremont books in other places. And I'm trying to place where... You'll see it in a big bad way come 1993 through 1996. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Charles Xavier. Oh, well, that plays into current continuity, I guess. It does, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's that, and there's um, Aurora is another one, but that was written by John Byrne. Yeah. In, in, the, in Alpha Flight, she's got that suppressed, more dark self that's more into her uh, satisfying her urges. Currently in Leonard Kirk's um, and uh, James Robinson's Fantastic Four, um, Sue Storm is dealing with possibly being afflicted by malice. Oh, right. Now this has happened before with her. Mm-hmm. I believe so. I uh, My FF history is shaky sure. Well, best. this is before you would have been reading. This is like in the 80s. Yeah. So. And I... Yes, there was a dark Sue Storm who wore a spiky and I know costume. For, with... I know for a while that Polaris was affected by malice as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so. she was. Man. Speaking of Polaris, let's give Jerry a high five for coming through on my birthday. When I met Jim Steranko, I get all tongue-tied around comic book creators, but Jerry busted it out and was able to get Jim Steranko to sign happy birthday, Sean, on my X-Men number 50. Yeah, hey. Happy Jesus here, man. Thanks. I got a lot to do if I'm going to live up to that. It kind of happened between recordings. I'm a little bummed out about that. It's okay. It did last year, too, because we just celebrated our one-year anniversary. That is true. But, um, yeah, happy birthday. Thanks, happy buddy. Happy 33rd birthday. So, that was awesome with Steranko. I love that guy, man. He's a great dude. He's, I mean, he falls into that category with Neil Adams is is kind of like the personalities that are too big for their bodies and there are a lot of people that that rubs the wrong way but i eat that stuff up man they're they are legends yep. and and i think they play up to that and i love it i and i thank them for it in that three minutes or whatever it was we had with steranko i'm gonna remember that not oh, just yeah. that i talked to steranko because i've talked to him before, but um that you and i got to talk to steranko we good. even talked a little bit of x-men with him Oh man, I was talking to Seawick on uh, Wednesday, uh-huh. and and it's a guy who goes into our comic book shop, big Storanko fan. He bought a bunch of prints, blah blah blah. I'm really excited to meet him, and uh, he was telling me something about how somebody asked him to do an interview, uh-huh. and he was like, well, "What's your publication?" <laughs> and the guy was like, uh, "I don't have one." He's like, "Oh, too bad." <laughs> <laughs> so I was happy that we didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I've way. I've reached out to him a couple times, and he's politely turned me down so it's we'll right. probably never have him on the gx pod. it's okay but that does not change my love for I, I gotta admit though he did tell us a really cool story that he was the person who designed the i don't know if we've ever talked about this in the show but he told us we've that he, mentioned it okay i think but but yeah tell it again because he, he was the person who designed the most well-known x-men uh the the block three-dimensional x-men logo yes that, that you see like 
from the time of X-Men 50 all the way through the Uncanny run. Oh, yeah. And did they use it in the... I mean, the, you still see it today. Did they use it in the Jim Lee X-Men? I think so, yeah. Um, but I don't think they use it anymore, do no, they? No, they've got a new one that's a little bit closer to the original one that he didn't like. Oh, he tore up yeah, the original one. Really he was like, look, I'll draw the X-Men for you, but not with that logo. Yeah. <laughs> and then, in true Jim Skarenko fashion, he's like, and they never paid me for it! <laughs> so, back to this issue. It ends with Karma being reunited with her younger siblings and she uh, heads off to live a life in New York taking care of her kids and who knows her kids her brother and sister who knows what's going to happen to her in the future right only the shadow only the shadow the shadow does that uh, but she tells them all if they ever need any assistance you have but to ask for karma yeah and now she has her code name There is a little explanation of what karma is in the issue and, and kind of sp- spells out how she's tied to that. Yeah. Uh, and that was a neat little sequence. We don't have to read it or anything. The real reason we wanted, and, and the reason we, we decided we definitely have to talk about this issue was because of karma, but we've been talking about talking about this issue for a while because there's a little, what, 10-page backup mm-hmm. written by Chris Claremont. Drawn by none other than John Byrne and inked by our boy Bob McCloud. It is a good-looking little story. Uh, I think McCloud really brings out the John Byrne-ness. Yeah. In the, I mean, of everybody we've seen ink Byrne, I think he's the closest to Terry Austin that we'll see. Yeah. Like, it looks the most like a Terry Austin book. Oh, I agree. Book. But this is the story of how Storm first met the Black Panther. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very short. They, they were brought together. And this is the cool thing about this story is that, uh, okay, she's she's uh, her skull is creased by a sniper. In Typical Chris Claremont fashion. Everybody gets shot in the head, but not really shot in the head. Across the forehead. I want to know if he knew anyone who survived that. Like if he had a personal experience. That's why that was the well he always went to. Right. Well, it, it was that close. That's how close it was. It could have been right through her brain. So she tortures this guy into telling her who would it tortures by blowing him with a hurricane. Not blowing him with oh, a hurricane. Jerry, Jesus. <laughs> Come on. Uh, she well, I don't even know how to say it, man. She she assails him with this she hurricane. She starts torturing him with hurricane winds, dumping and rain on him. Until he finally says uncle, and then she tells him that the guy who hired him to kill her is this Andreas Deruder guy, and that sends her into this flashback. Mm-hmm. And this flashback is cool. It's just this ten-page throwaway backup story, but this fills in partially the time between when Storm is a little girl in Egypt, the little pickpocket that Professor X runs into in Uncanny One Thirty One Sixteen, maybe. No, no, it's it isn't it after Dark Phoenix. Oh, I thought it was before with the Shadow King. It was with you. 116? 17? 18? Dang. Somewhere in there. Not very good at this. One of our previous episodes. Editor's note, that was issue 117. Get it!
it takes us from that time period to the time period we know of where Professor X finds her later, and she's like the storm goddess that brings rains to the people of Kenya. Yes. This ties those two time periods together and explains that she's wandering from Cairo to Kenya for whatever reason. And uh, on the way, she finds this group of white men accosting this, this young African man in the plains of Kenya. And, of course, she chips in to help the guy. And it turns out that the dude is none other than Prince T'Challa, who will someday become the Black Panther. And uh, they fight off this absolutely enormous South African white guy. And uh, this Andreas de Ruder guy. And yay, now they're buddies. And they kind of travel together for a while. And eventually they, they part ways as friends. So um, now that Storm is alerted to this new threat from de Ruder, who for some reason wants revenge on the two of them, she rushes to the Black Panther's estate in new york and tells the butler who who answers the door that that he should let t'challa know that the wind rider she who he christened his white lions is here and they meet and they talk and she says hey there's trouble and they go off to fight the trouble together and they're uh, greeted in deruder's apartment by this giant robot yep after a really <laughs> The hostess fruit by <laughs> and with the Iron Man. Um, I love the hostess ad so much. Yeah. It's pretty oh good God. to do it in story form. Although it's clear that uh, Iron Man has taken his love for alcohol and switched it over to hostess fruit pies because he is <laughs> clobbering fools to get his hands on these things. This guy is going to have to get out of that Mark IV armor and straight into the Mark I armor with the amount of hostess pies he is housing. <laughs> Tony Stark's going to get bad. Oh my god. He will So too. Storm, to get back to the issue, Storm's like, she's picking the locks and she's basically giving T'Challa crap because if he had done what he wanted to do, which was just kick down the door, it was triggered with explosives so it would have blown him to holy hell. And that's when they first, when they get through that first set of doors is when they run into the robot, which is probably now my favorite robot in comics because of how it's defeated. So they're throwing <laughs> everything at this thing. And all of a sudden Storm's like, I can't, this thing is clearly, it's got both of our power sets. So I'm just going to blow a hole through the floor. The robot falls through the floor into the basement, crashes, okay, and they get to a second set of doors, and I don't know why, because T'Challa's always described as, like, one of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe. He's just like, you know what? First door was booby-trapped. Second one can't be. I'll just bust through it. <laughs> it can't be, because where else could Deruder himself be? Exactly. Hiding. And he was right, Sean. His yep. powers of deduction rival... Some other detectives that we're not going to ever mention by name. Boo. Boo. So when they see Deruder, they all of a sudden realize that he has died because he was connected to the robot and the shock and anger over not defeating them and, and killing them, but being defeated in one last battle against the two of them just pushed him over the edge. So he's just sitting in the chair, dead. And that's the end of their tale. They part as friends... It says they part as friends. They may wish for more because obviously they've got feelings for each other. But that is what they are, friends. What they will remain forever. 
So I'm sure that was Claremont's intention that they had this little tryst in Africa and they have this bond together, but that's all it's ever going to be is a friendship. It's Mia Culpa time, Sean, because we, like a lot of other X-Men fans, younger fans, thought that that whole Black Panther Aurora thing was kind of contrived when they got married. Yeah. And um, we didn't see the connection. Like, okay, they're both African and they both are superheroes. That's enough that they need to be married. Not knowing that this story yeah, existed. Yeah, still going to eat my words. Me too. Me too. Um, still. I mean, I'm an X-Men fan from the time where she was being wooed by Forge, so that's always going to be my spot. Yep. That's going to be the one I root for. But there's your explanation. For all of you who wondered what the connection between Storm and Black Panther was, they go way back. Way further back than she goes with anybody else that you're familiar with. Still don't buy it. Yeah, me either. Screw that. I'm glad um, they're broken up. I'm a Forge guy. I even bought more in the cape, the tiny little cable relationship that was brewing in the '90s. <laughs> but I don't buy. I know I didn't buy the Black Panther thing, and I definitely don't buy the last-minute Wolverine thing. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know, man. I mean, I get it, but it, if, it, it would have been better if it happened 20 years ago. Yeah. I, I'm kind of... I don't want to say I'm ambivalent about it, but I have mixed feelings about that relationship. I feel like it it should have happened earlier. I feel like it should have, too, but now that it's come at this tail end of it, that's the part that bothers It feels like two retirees who are like, well, yeah, we might as well. You want to do it? Yeah. <laughs> It did seem really out of the blue. Yeah. Anyway, so that's Marvel Team Up number 100. What would you give it? Thumbs up, right? Yeah. It was fun. I'll tell you what. And hey, thanks, man, for going out on eBay and tracking that down just so we could talk about it on the show. No problem. <laughs> thanks for... Uh, when Jerry and I first met long before we ever discussed having a podcast, we were at a... Uh, at a function at our local comic book shop, and I told him that I had never read the New Mutants graphic novel. And so Jerry... Was it one of the auctions where yes. I won a pristine copy of it? And Jerry was like, if I win this thing, I'll give you one of my older copies. Is that mine? Yeah. Oh, I don't even remember doing that. Jerry, Good job, Jerry. Jerry gave me the New Mutants Marvel graphic novel number four. First appearance of the New Mutants. Dude, that is... You have the copy that I read as a little kid. That makes me feel so good. Oh, I'm sorry if some of those paid... <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. I did the same thing to the Xavier pages. Yeah, you did. God, I can't believe we're here, Sean. Since day one, we've been talking about this moment where we would finally get to the New Mutants. Well, I'm excited because it's a whole chunk that I've never read. The only New Mutants I've read now are the New Mutants for the podcast. I just I can't express what an important place in my heart when it comes to comics this book has. Like, um, I'm I loved comics before the New Mutants. You know, it was a as a really little kid. It was Rom and Micronauts and Spider Man, and um, 
you know, I got my hands on some burn issues of X-Men that I really dug. And, uh, but this, this book was like kids my age or close to my age. I mean, even, even Bobby and Rain were older than me when I started reading, but, um, close to my age and they were awkward preteens, teenagers that, you know, were worried about all the same crap I was worried about. And, um, it, like, it, it was just so accessible for me, even though my first issue was, uh, Sinkevich issue <laughs> it yeah. still felt you know I felt like this this is what high school is going to be like when I get to high school and um, oh my god I so badly when I was younger wanted to win the lottery and buy a big house and have all my friends move in it so it could be basically like a senior yeah. school start your own charter school yeah for gifted youngsters oh wouldn't that be something yeah so I'm just I'm really happy to be talking about this stuff right now because this is like the book for me as a kid. It was X Men and New Mutants were the books. Yeah. But between the two, I mean I think most people probably considered X Men to be the better book, but this was the one that like I felt this one every month. Yeah. And they go through some stuff, and I went through it with them like, whew. But here we are at the beginning. Marvel Graphic Novel number four. X-Men! The New Mutants, written by Chris Claremont and drawn and inked by his co-creator Bob McCloud. And this has your normal um, supporting cast from the X-Men books. You've got Tom Wozniakowski doing the letters, Glennis Ween doing the colors, and this is not the standard four color printing process comic colors this is her marker colors as they would have appeared on her templates that she would have drawn uh, like the actual colors the way they normally look have you ever seen her color templates much more impressive than the printed edition that's what you get to see here this is a graphic novel format it's more expensive it's about 10 times more expensive than a regular comic book but it's almost 50 pages it's uh I love that it's ten times more expensive than a regular comic, but now it's actually cheaper. <laughs> well, I hate to admit it, but this came out thirty years ago. This is seeing that the price point on the cover of this book is four ninety five is infuriating because for the past few months Marvel's been doing this thing where slowly but surely multiple books have been shipping every week with four ninety nine titles. Yep. New Death of Wolverine, which was a weekly book. I mean, annuals are going up to five ninety nine. It's ridiculous. It's almost as if Disney is trying to put print out of business. Like they're actively working at it. Yeah. And it's nowhere near as good as these fifty pages. It's tough when you look at the competition. I mean, there's a lot of books being put out by Image that are three ninety nine, but you get in some of those books thirty two pages. Yeah. Of story, at least twenty four usually. And here you're getting 20. And you're, it's typically top talent drawing the book. You know, and they're usually really nice to look at. But man, that is a bitter pill. Yeah. It, it, I think we agree that is an unacceptable price point. And I'm taking my dollar elsewhere. Sticking to my guns on this one, you guys. 
so for year 495 in 1982, in the fourth quarter of 1982, when this book was released, I think it was November, um, you got a book that was kind of mega-sized. It was a, a large square-bound, um, I don't know, 9 by 12 maybe issue, uh, 46, 48, 50 pages, somewhere in there. Really heavy paper uh, for the cover, nice paper inside, nice glossy Baxter paper, whatever they call it. Um, a really beautiful presentation. But my understanding is that um, it didn't start off that way. The original plan was not to do that. But they had this idea where they're producing these graphic novels and they're like, hey, why don't we launch New Mutants as one? And so, for the first time, we get a, a Marvel property being launched with an ongoing in mind and the first appearance of the characters is in a graphic novel form. And uh, the first 10 pages or so are, well, let's say first dozen pages, are uh, uh, getting the band together kind of thing. Yep. And it's really cool because the first sequence introduces us to the first character we're going to meet, who's Rain Sinclair, a young red-headed Scottish girl who was introduced to us in a nearly identical fashion to the first page of the Uncanny X-Men's uh, Giant Size X-Men number one. The all-new, all-different X-Men when we meet Kurt Wagner, who's being chased by a mob because of his appearance. Yes. Which is exactly what's happening to Rain Sinclair, except instead of being saved by Professor X, she's saved by his former love, Moira McTaggart, who takes her in turns out she's like the landlord of, of the, the area and so they they listen to her when she runs them off and she takes rain in and uh, this poor little werewolf girl who turns out to be a mutant and um, the two have a connection I guess because Moira had delivered her as a baby yes um, and then we're introduced to Roberto Bobby da Costa mm -hmm. future sunspot on the team. And uh, he's a star soccer player who gets into a brawl with some of the, the white players in, in Brazil where he's he's living and playing. And uh, he first manifests his power there and uh, throws one of them a country mile. Yeah. And the fans in the stands panic. And there's a stampede as everybody tries to get away, except for his doting girlfriend, Juliana, who rushes out onto the field to, to clutch him. And, and weep for him as he falls comatose. And then, I think my favorite and the most emotional one for me, <laughs> we're introduced to Sam Guthrie, who is both of our favorite characters. Yep. And uh, this poor kid, man. Oh, Lordy. Yeah. He's uh, just lost his father to the black lung. I think I'm getting the black lung, Bob. Um, so I, did, I did feel pretty bad for him in here because he clearly talks about the fact that he had hopes for college and when his dad passed, he realized that this is his life now. It's pretty... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but he's doing it because he has a boatload, as we'll learn in, in the 2000s, he has a boatload of younger siblings at yes. home. And... Um, and he's, somebody's got to take care of them. So he's going to sacrifice his future by going into the mines so that they can escape. Sam Guthrie is one of those characters that when I was younger reading it, I was like, I hope I grow into be that type of 
person. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting because as we find out later in the in the issue, this at the beginning, this is clearly the most heroic character of the five that we're going to meet. But he, he's like the villain of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that he's... He, I mean, he shows he shows his true character the whole way, but he falls in with the wrong crowd. Yeah, and he is labeled as a villain. True, I think he'd probably fall into the wrong crowd too, just because he's at a pretty vulnerable state in his life. And I'm sure the idea of maybe getting some more money from the bad guy of the group, like he doesn't realize that they're bad until they do something later on. So it's just a wrong yeah. place at the wrong time type of scenario for him. Sure. It just it dawned on me, like, you know, the, the guy, as we're introduced to him, he shows that he's a hero. Uh, his first day on the job, yeah, there's a cave-in in the mine. Everybody gets out except for him and one other guy, and that's when he manifests his power for the first time. And he blasts the two of them like a cannonball through the rock to safety. Yeah. And uh, when he wakes up, he's like, how the heck did we get out here? But uh, both he and Bobby are being tracked by a mysterious somebody remotely. So then we meet Danny Moonstar, mm-hmm. um, who is chilling out in the Colorado mountains near Sundance. And uh, <laughs> she and her mountain lion have like a, a telepathic connection Um where she can communicate with them. And it turns out she can do that with almost all animals. But she's greeted by her grandfather, Black Eagle, who's come out to tell her that she's going to move away from the mountains to go live with this guy, Charles Xavier, who's going to teach her how to develop her gifts. Yeah. And she's so upset by the fact that he's forcing her off of their land to go live with a white man that she manifests her powers... Not for the first time. Right. She's done this before when she uh, envisioned the death of her parents, who, who died at the hands of a grizzly bear. At the hands and the teeth, I guess. Right. But uh, she manifests another vision in front of her and her grandfather of him being beaten to death by these guys who are wearing that mandroidy armor that we saw the Hellfire Club attack the X-Men with back in X-Men 129. Um, and they're both horrified by this happening. Yes. Uh, and she's so horrified that she agrees. Whatever you say, I'm so sorry. I agree. I'll go be with this Charles Xavier and whatever may come. And then we're revealed that the mysterious man who was watching Sam and Bobby is also watching her. And it's none other than Donald Pierce, who formerly was the white bishop of the Hellfire Club. Yes. And now has decided he hates all mutants, and he has a plan to go out and exterminate this crop of new mutants. Um, so she wakes up from a nightmare, finds out that her grandfather has indeed died in the manner that she foresaw, and she swears vengeance. Yeah. And then we're introduced to the, the final of the five new people, and it's somebody we're already familiar with because we discussed her earlier in the episode, and that's Karma. And they're kind of exploring, and and by means of exploring on page, they're explaining what Karma's powers are. She uh, possesses Moira, and uh, 
and they're kind of you know Sean and Rain are the first ones at the X school you know and, and they're asking if they're going to become part of the school and Professor X at this point is still mourning the loss of the the X-Men because he believes them to be dead in the pages that we talked about on the previous episode they're off in broodland yes at this point and uh, we see you know Sean is the older more experienced one Rain is very shy very self-conscious not sure that her powers are a gift at all um, and in a couple of these panels it's kind of cool you can see Rain's kind of got fangs you know and that that devilish red hair that's unnaturally short no matter what she does she can't grow it and um she looks a little bit demonic and she's raised this really repressed catholic upbringing um she kind of hates herself and she kind of thinks she's evil and she's not convinced that what professor x is telling her is right that that these are gifts that she should hone and develop but they're sent out to collect Danny, who, because Professor X has gotten a call, turns out that he was good friends with Danny's parents. Yes. And um, they, so Black Eagle has asked him to come, to go get uh, uh, Danielle and bring her back and teach her how to use her powers. But when they get there, they're attacked by these agents of Donald Pierce. So one of the agents of uh, Donald Pierce's crew, they they swoop in and start attacking Danny. One of them winds up killing the mountain lion that she uh, had the telepathic connection with, which upsets her pretty poorly. They go after Danny, and all of a sudden one of them is possessed by Karma, who starts shooting the others. And uh, Danny shows some real... Uh, she's pretty angry about everything that's happening, obviously, but um, she's the first one that kind of shows any type of, like, I'm going to kill these people for what they've done with good right i mean but she's definitely in a place far worse than the other new mutants at this point because these people have killed her grandfather killed her pet mountain lion and now specifically come after her to kill her so uh xavier convinces her to stop um and not kill that particular hellfire club guard or whatever but she doesn't make any promises about whether or not she'll uh, go after Donald Pierce. And so they head um, off to Rio de Janeiro. I believe now to find Sunspot. Oh, at this point they split up. Yes. They pull a Cyclops plan. And they split up. Because it's important that they get to them as quickly as they can. Yeah. And, uh... So they're at the hotel... It's uh, Moira, Shan, and Danny, and some, uh, was it FBI guys? I I am not clear on who, I mean, they're not FBI because it's in Brazil. But, right, okay. Um, the Policia. Yeah, bust in. They give Moira a good slap. Man, all this violence against women, I'm not down with it. Yep. But the, the kids get away. Yes. Through the use of their powers and Moira sacrificing herself. The kids get away, and they kind of find Bobby in a bad spot. Yep. Because the, the Hellfire agents, who reveal themselves to be the same agents that were carved up by Wolverine in issue 132 or 133, I guess 133, um, 
and who will later become Lady Deathstrike's accomplices. And then again, under Donald Pierce, is the Reavers. Yes. These guys, are they still have some shred of their humanity left at this point. <laughs> but they're in these red Hellfire Club outfits. Oh man, those things are still creepy, crash dummy looking things. Yeah. And uh, they've kidnapped Roberto's girlfriend to get him to come out and, and, uh, and turn himself in. And then uh, Roberto and the girls try to try to bust up the party and um, and they're successful but in the process uh, Bobby's girlfriend is tragically shot and killed by one of the Hellfire guards um, mostly because Shan and Danny kind of have the situation under control but Bobby doesn't realize who they are and she punches he punches Shan out yeah and uh, and she loses control of the guard that she had possessed and that's the same guard that, that kills Juliana. So Bobby's got is saddled with this uh, guilt of being partially responsible for the death of his girlfriend. Oh, so then we cut to um, the other half of the group, which is Xavier and Rain, and they're in Kentucky, clearly looking for a cannibal, I assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he runs straight into him. Literally. Launching him out of the uh, Jeep that they're driving around in. But uh, Cannonball does one thing that is uncharacteristic. He's dressed up in the Hellfire Club guard. Clearly, this is the point where he's fallen into the wrong crowd. But he does the uncharacteristic thing and pulls Xavier from the wreckage. So just leaving him there. I don't think he meant for anything too terrible to happen to him. Right. And uh, He was sent out to gather him up, and that's what he's going to do. Yeah. Not dead, if he can avoid it. So Rain manages to uh, sneak away. Cannibal's convinced that he saw her, but she manages to get away. And uh, follows, tracks him down, hops over some fences, and uh, is able to see what's happening. That uh, Pierce and the Hellfire Club have Professor Xavier kidnapped, along with Tessa. Tessa from the Hellfire Club, right. And they never really fleshed out what her role in the Hellfire Club was in those early X-Men issues. Yeah. Um, she will have a role in the X-Men later on. Um, oh, I wanted to mention, too, that Bobby wanted to go look for Rain and make sure she was okay. Yes. And, and the guards were like, no. Sam did. Yeah, 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 sorry, Cannonball. Sam wanted to. I mean, so he's like he's showing he's not a bad guy. He's in the wrong situation. And he kind of dug himself a hole here. Yeah. He's slowly realizing. But um, this page right here is the page that is most memorable to me reading this as a kid um you you see that professor x and tessa are captured and um rain is kind of looking in from a, a skylight and sam finds her and blasts past her yeah and i love uh, the way mcleod has drawn sam when he's blasting is uh, he shows the little cannonball trail behind him and he always draws the sound effect into the trail yeah <laughs> I don't think anybody else really did that. But uh, every panel where he's blasting, you see some the entire length of the blast trail. You, you see a sound effect. And I, I just dig that, man. Like, I don't I don't think people dig on sound effects as much anymore. Yeah, and so bummer. it kind of harkens back. But um, that scene where he sees her and then Danny scares him. Yeah. And he blasts through the corner of a building to get away because he's so terrified by this 
image of being caught in a another cave. I love that page, man. It was probably my favorite page when I was reading it too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. See, I really like the 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 angle that it shot at, where you can see him coming out the other end. I just think that's cool. Yeah. So then the rest of the new mutants, who are not new mutants yet, show up. And a big battle begin between. Love that. Shan grabs a machine gun and just starts shooting. <laughs> she's been in conflict before. I mean, she shows that she's the one who's got some experience. Everybody else shows they're powerful. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but each one of them gets a really good crack at, at Pierce. But um, he's just got too much power and experience for him. And they're about to lose this fight. Rain took a really nasty shot and has broken her ribs and a lung has been punctured. Yeah. And she's in really bad shape and she might be dying, but Professor X pushes her to help free him. And very heroically, she does it. And uh, once Xavier is free, the fight's over. Yeah. Because uh, in any fight, Professor X is always the baddest man in the room. So, um... I was, I was a little, um, I mean, obviously I understand, like, towards the end here, like, Tessa basically explains, like, you guys don't deal with Pierce, I do. Like, he's gone against the Hellfire Club, we'll handle it on our own. You've seen the last of Donald Pierce. Yeah. She uh, says. Yeah. Way to go. And then, uh, I thought this was slightly uncharacteristic. This was the one issue that I had with the story, mm-hmm. is that I understand at this moment, like, um... Cannibal kind of walks up and goes, pardon me, sir, to Xavier. He's like, what should I do? Like, all of those people left. Like, where am I supposed to go? And Bobby's basically like, beat it. Like, your goons killed my girlfriend. And I understand Bobby's anger. Uh-huh. But I don't understand the fact that Xavier kind of... Xavier doesn't even say anything. He just gets in an elevator with the rest of the kids and just... Because for for a guy who's gone out of his way to be there for Wolverine, it just kind of shocked me. Yeah, I you know I I thought about it a little bit as I was reading it, but there's a lot going on on those panels that other than the words that are spoken, right? And you can see everybody's just surprised that he would even ask what he should do. You know, like you're the bad guy, man. Like. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you even think that we want to talk to you? I think and Professor X is, you know, he's got his hand on his chin and he's like, he's looking at Sam, and he's looking at Bobby, and he's like, God, what do I do with this kid? And I, maybe he just decide. I mean, he's so on the fence at this point about what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, and maybe he thought this kid's a bad seed, even though everything is screaming that he's not. It is surprising, and it does seem out of character. But for, I mean, he he clearly changes his mind, right? Because while we're watching, back at the school, the, the Jerry's Ford, comic crush coming up. We got all the kids getting dressed into their school uniforms. <laughs> Danny Moonstar shirtless. <laughs> she is. Oh, the one who maybe you don't want to see shirtless, <laughs> because uh, she's. You know, the the thing with these kids is that they're drawn like kids. Yep. You know, the, McLeod made an effort to make uh, 
okay, Sean is is nineteen. It's established he's nineteen years old in this book. Um, and we should throw out there that it's going to be revealed later that um, we we know how old other than Danny. I don't know if it's ever mentioned exactly how old Danny is, but Rain is fourteen. Bobby is thirteen. He's thirteen years old in this book. He's just a little kid. Sam is sixteen, and Sean is the, by far the oldest at nineteen years old. And they're all little. Rain is four eleven and ninety five pounds. Yeah. Bobby is only five four, buck twenty five, and Sean is a hundred and five and five three. I mean, these are not super cut out from the superhero mold in any way. And um. You know, and, and uh, Sam is the closest that it comes at six feet, 185. And, uh, and, but he's been told in no uncertain terms by Bobby that he's not welcome. So they're all getting ready for their first training session, putting on their, their Kitty Pride-esque costumes, matching uniforms, and, um, and they're kind of reflecting. And I want, did you notice when they're in their rooms, Bobby's room, Kind of look. I'm wondering if he was maybe in Wolverine's old room. Like yeah. if Professor X was like, "You'll have to take Wolverine's old room." There's a framed picture of Wolverine on a wall, and next to it is like a girly calendar. Yeah. <laughs> so either I mean Bobby could have brought that stuff up from Rio, or he maybe he got Wolverine's old room. But you see, uh, Danny puts on some of her Native American, her boots and her her belt it's like a turquoise belt yes and uh so she's trying to keep some of her individuality she doesn't want to be like any teenager is not going to want to wear this uniform yeah but uh you know you'd think they'd be into she it a little she bit. wants to make it her own she does rightly much so like, man. much like wolverine when he first joined the team he was like i ain't wearing that training outfit i'm an individual that's right so uh she she bucks she bucks the norm uh, and they're ready to go, and they walk out, and they show it off, and and there's a knock on the door, and it's Sam. And uh, he's been invited by Professor X yep. to join the team. And he walks in, and, <laughs> oh, man, the feels, because I think about this, the way that it's it all started, Bobby hates Sam for everything that he was involved in, but the two of them become the best friends. You know, to think that this is where it starts, where Bobby is, uh, like, opens his arms to him, even though he hates his guts. Love it. It's a real song, Jerry. Ah, it is. Even though I hate your guts, I welcome you into my basement. I invite you along to this convention. Wherever I go, I want you there. There you go. All these other conventions you always refuse to go. So before we get to our big interview... Let's just quickly cover the the first three issues of New Mutants, which are great. We don't want to give them short shrift, but we want to encourage you to read the issues. Sean is very concerned that we go into too much detail, and we don't leave you guys anything to explore on your own. I am. So we want to do that. We'll try to um, just point out some of the stuff that we really loved about the issues and, um, and talk about how good they make us feel. Because, Sean, you got to read these for the first time. I did. X-Men! New Mutants number one by Claremont and McCloud. McCloud's just doing the penciling. 
on this issue. This is inked by Mike Gustavich, so it has a, a different feel than you got with the graphic novel. But the rest of the creative team is intact. I love the opening of this first issue. I do too. You get Stevie Hunter giving Sean a new haircut because she has that atrocious bowl cut in the graphic novel and in her first appearance in Marvel Team-Up number 100. But it's cool, man, because the rest of the team is kind of standing around and watching. And uh, and it's like, th- this is the kind of stuff that brings a team together, man. They're, they're doing stuff almost as a family. And yeah. Bob McCloud was kind enough to give me the pencils to that opening splash page. And I'll have those on our Tumblr sometime next week. Nice. Pretty excited to bring it to you guys. For a second there, I thought you meant the actual <laughs> pencils. And I was like, what the hell did you do to that guy? If that had happened, I wouldn't have even been here because I'd be dead from happiness. I do miss these moments in the X-Men. They seem way too few and far between. Where these were like staples of me growing up. You know, your New Mutants is my Generation X. Like that type of stuff happened all the time in those books. And it's really disappointing. I mean, I'm sure there was bits of it in New X-Men. But it feels like we're at a point now where we should be getting a new crop of young students. We and got I, it. We, we got it in Bendis' book, and they forgot about him because there were too many important things going on. Yeah, it's, they just, it gets overlooked. I mean, they tried with um, Generation Hope, and yeah. every single one of those kids fizzled. It's like, it just doesn't seem like the time is given to make any of these characters last. Uh-huh. Everyone, I mean, the one book that's consistently done it has been Wolverine and the X-Men. But there are also kids that have been around for quite some I mean, sure. a few of them have been introduced, but it just doesn't seem... It doesn't have the same feel. I'm okay with it because some of those guys I really dig. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I'm done with Eyeboy and yeah, the Shark Girl and, and yeah. whatever. What's the new one? Antler Girl? Stag Girl? What's her name? I, I don't care. Yeah. That's where I'm at, too. The last ones I cared about were like Rockslide and you know the 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 kids that were introduced when they reintroduced the New Mutants. Yeah. Years later. Anol. Yes. Yeah. Those guys. Um, Hellion. Dust. Dust. Yeah. Yeah. I want more of those guys. Yeah. Elixir. Uh huh. Yeah. He got he got some stardom time did. for a minute. We're digressing. Yeah. So. uh... So yeah, this is like downtime. What's going on on a Friday night? Uh, unfortunately, Danny's power just got no control over it, and it shows Sean and everyone else all the crap that Sean went through, all the stuff she probably wouldn't want anybody else to know about. Yeah, because it's too painful to relive. And um, oh man, I have not seen Sean this mad before or since. Yeah, she definitely loses it. Of course, the snapper out of it. Bobby pulls a Hank Pym. Oh, yeah. I'm really kind of tired of seeing this. <laughs> Sean, you should take this home, and this is this is how you control your woman. You slap her across the face. Don't you know that? You just tell me. <laughs> no, it's it's horrible. But I mean, she is she is li- literally about to kill. <laughs> True, Danny. So, um, they did have to snap her out. But, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, they're off to a rocky start here in issue one. Danny is thoroughly embarrassed by what's happened and is pretty sure none of them are ever going to want to talk to her again. Yeah. She goes off kind of 
on her own, looking through the mansion, kind of doing the inner monologue of whether or not she feels like she should be there, and she stumbles upon the attic, thinking that she can just go up there and kind of hide out. And that's when she realizes that there's all these plants that have been neglected because she's in Storm's room. And she feels a connection to this room immediately. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a cool connection between her and Storm right now. I dig that. Um, But Professor X senses clearly that she's up there, and he calls a meeting. Yeah. And we cut to London and um, to the residence of the Israeli ambassador. And Moira is there, and she's with Ileana. And they go and visit Gabriel Haller because she's asked them to be there because she wants Moira's help with her son who's um, developing some what she feels are possibly mutant powers and he's a little weird. Yeah. He's got autism, but she she thinks that... Um, Not that autism's weird. No. I'm sorry. No, no, no. He's different. But, but she thinks that that he's also autistic and it could be a symptom of his mutation. And Moira goes, hey, like, this is great, but I'm going to have to talk to Charles because this is way more up his alley than it is mine. And this is when the bomb get drop, gets oh, dropped. Man. Or Gabriel Heller busts out the, I don't want Charles involved because it's his son. Man! so awkward the scene is so awkward because they both have had a pass with professor x Ileana's there coughing up a lung because gabrielle's become a chain smoker i just looked at the next page and folded my comic book and jerry looked at me like he wanted to slap me like sorry it's your comic do what you want sorry um so yeah man i mean okay so cool because that is a seed that is planted and not developed for really like 20 there's actually a couple things issues? that are brought up in here because you see a lot of uh danny's past it's the first time that not even demon bear is mentioned but just the bear that yep so uh, like it's another one of those things of like i love that claremont just drops these little seeds uh-huh lets them grow dropping seeds with Ileana. yeah because i thought the the whole obviously the gabrielle heller connection here was cool for me to see for the first time because I know the outcome of it, but it's nice to see the genesis of it. Yeah. I also think it's really cool that the first thing that it was, so we cut back to the Xavier School, and I just think that it's always good to have one of those, like, hey kids, here's the danger room issues. Yeah. Because it's a really fun, good way to introduce the characters, show off their powers a little bit, without having them immediately go into, like, fighting a supervillain. I like the fact that this issue is really like a um, You're this, not going to be X-Men. You're going to be trained to use your powers. Yeah. So you can enter society. Yeah, it's a little more after school special. Yeah. A little less let's go kick Magneto in the teeth. Right. And I love that their first test is consistent. They get the same first test that everybody else got. The yep. same first test that Kitty Pride went through two years ago in issues but probably only weeks or months ago in marvel timeline and that is walk through the door and walk across the room to the other side yeah and none of them can do it except for danielle who won't go yep she she gets down to the door and she freaks out she takes off running and uh cuts to a scene where she's overlooking 
the property. She's off in the woods overlooking the lake. Rain comes up to her and they start talking. It's a good little, um... I like Rain so much. I like Rain so much more in these. Like, I mean, I, I obviously grew to like the character later on. Um, you know, but so much... It's been so dark lately. Yeah, she's ever, just ever not since the, same the character. time of Messiah Complex, and there were some things that they did um, in that second volume of New Mutants that I wasn't super pumped up about. Yeah, in, in X Factor, the story with her son. Yeah, X-Factor. yeah, she's been through a lot, so it's nice to see young, slightly hopeful Rain. Yeah, um, but she—it's revealed that while she's in. No, did they talk about this in the graphic novel? When, when she's in wolf form, or in that trans... They talk about it here, that, that when she's in wolf form... Um, they can communicate telepathically, yes. the two of them. So they immediately it's, have a special bond. It's difficult, but they can. She she kind of has to develop the skill, because talking to Rain is so much more difficult than talking to an animal, because her thoughts are more complex. Yes. Um, but, yeah, man, those two were peas in a pod when i was a kid yeah and to go back to that time is just such a treat (laughs) i love it but um stevie takes the she takes the kids downtown going shopping at the mall and we see some uh shady folks watching them when we see that they're talking on a computer screen to henry peter gyrick who's a character that i've always hated even without any connection to the because of the X-Men cartoon. He was never my um, favorite person. But I did find it interesting that um, they mention in this project Wide Awake. Yep. Or they, they call him Wide Awake, which is, I always, years later when I was a kid, like, Project Wide Awake even tied into Sentinels and Onslaught. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. They, and they do call it Project Wide Awake um, in the second issue. I think. Okay. Yeah. So they kind of lay out the groundwork there for what's going to happen in the next issue. Yeah. They're being surveilled by the government. Danny, meanwhile, decides she's finally worked up the courage to to do this test on her own. She watched the professor work controls, so she thinks she's got it under control, and she'll just do the test on her own. Yeah. And she does, man. She just walks right across the room, kicks the crap out of some robots, and she goes, I did it, I passed the test, and she gets zapped. And we don't know who did it. There's a shadowy figure up in the control room. Somebody is there in the X-Mansion with her. We don't know who it is. But we kind of do. Because we've been reading the (laughs) X-Men. And we know what's been going on in the pages of the X-Men with the brood. And it was hinted at a long time ago that Professor X has a brood. Yeah. Um, Queen Larvae planted inside of him. The shadowy figure has activated a pretty gnarly scenario for Danny to wake up into in the in the danger room, and that's where issue number one ends. What a cliffhanger! It's not good for Danny. Issue number two. X Men has some different looking Sentinels on the cover. Yeah, they're not the same. I've never seen that color scheme before, but they look cool. I always like the Sentinels when they show up, because I really like the fact that you can cut loose on some robots. You can't really kill the blob, you know? But Tear you can, heads and arms you can, off. Yeah. Some more great Bob McCloud art. Danny's running through the danger room, trying to get away. 
And all of a sudden she is, as she's, she's getting away from the monster that's been chasing her, rounds this cliff, and all of a sudden she runs face first into a brood. Yeah. Do we call her a queen? She's I think a so. future queen. Future queen. It's not a princess. I don't know what you call them. I get what you're saying. But, um, yeah. It, it kind of kicks her off the cliff, and she falls and plummets. She's in the danger room, so she couldn't really have fallen too far. Right. But it looks like hundreds of feet from her perspective, and she's unconscious when she lands. And that brings us to the X-Men, or the the, new, the rest of the New Mutants team who have arrived at the mall, man. Uh, not even arrived at the mall. They've been at the movies while all this is going yes, on. Yes, they did. They went to the... Oh, man. And it's the first film that Rain Sinclair has ever seen. It's E.T. She comes out crying. Dude, thinks it was beautiful. My parents still give me crap because I cried my eyes out in E.T. Why do they give you crap for that? I don't know, but man, I love that movie. I found it super interesting that that was the movie that they chose, which I'm sure was just at the time really popular, so it just tied into that typical... Not just popular, man. Oh, well, e. I mean, like took over the world yeah. for a summer. But I think that it's really interesting that Rain's the one that connects so much to it. Because if you look at like the similarity of just here's a creature that's appeared, nobody understands it. There's a few people that are like, no, he's good, blah, blah, blah. But the government, you know, it's it's yeah. weird the similarity that's drawn with what's about to happen. There's no difference between the guys at the end of, you know, E.T. coming looking for him and Sentinels. Like, I found that yeah. to be actually pretty interesting. Yeah, you're right. Um, so, I did not make that connection, Sean. I'm sorry. Good job. I just I got a I got a soft spot for you. We went over the summer. We went to Universal, you know. Uh huh. And I went on the ET ride a bunch of times because I love. <laughs> I don't care. I love the scene when you're on the little bike and you go over the little tiny town with all its lights and stuff. Oh, we went. That, that was sounds the, cool. That was the last ride I went when we were at Universal. I could have sat there for hours just staring at the little tiny town. You got to walk through the forest, anyways. That's awesome. Anyway, so um, the New Mutants are hanging out, and they uh, run into some of the local town's kids, which is another thing. 310 flavors. Yes. <laughs> a lot of little background gags in this one. They're out yep. of vanilla, by the way. <laughs> it's yeah. dumb, but I love it. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. So, oh, and then, did you notice in, in that first, when they're coming out of the theater, there are some characters in the foreground Yeah. that, that are drawn in more than normal comic book detail. They're like photo reference. Yeah. Something. They have to be somebody. They have to be friends of his or something. Gotta ask about that. Yes, we do. I'm gonna ask him on Twitter tonight. There you go. So, uh, they run into these kids from the other school, which I thought was interesting because I feel like that's something that's definitely missing from the book. Like, it always felt like there was a connection to Salem Center, the town be it Harry's hideaway or anything like that. And I just feel like that's really... It's one of the things that I wish someone... I don't know if maybe it's because every, obviously everything's cyclical, so maybe the writers who are writing the book now were really big fans of the Outback era. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why there isn't as much of a connection to Westchester and the town and having that human Stevie Hunter, Trish Tilby element, but I miss it. Like, if I suddenly got a job right in the X-Men, there would be an influx of normal human teachers. Yeah. Well, 
I I mean, for me, the cool thing, and you get it here, is kind of, you know, whenever they find somebody finds out that they're from the Xavier School, they're like, oh, that creepy school up on the hill, yeah. like like they have this reputation of weird, creepy things going on there, and um, and it's just, yeah, I just love that, like you feel like you have inside information on something mysterious right you know like you're the one kid that was brave enough to go into the haunted house and find out what's really in there so we see a little bit of the guy rick and uh and sebastian shaw show up and start talking about the sentinels and project right away and sending the sentinels after how they shouldn't be um unleashed against the students but clearly shaw is working his own angle because guy rick doesn't know that he's a mutant and I remember when we saw them interacting earlier um, when Shaw was developing these Sentinels and we were kind of like, what is the deal? Why why on earth would a mutant want to do that? And we finally revealed he's he wants a Magneto scenario where, you know, you should be paranoid of humanity and you should want to get rid of humanity. And he's going to use Sentinels as his machine for doing that, for creating a situation that will drive mutanthood into his awaiting arms. Yes. And so then, um, cuts back to Stevie trying to call the school. There's no answer. And she gets grabbed from behind from somebody. And I thought this was a cool callback because it's yeah. Carol Danvers, uh, I believe, love interest. Yep. Michael Rossi. Air Force pilot extraordinaire. Colonel. The Air Force... Yeah, now, I don't know if you'd remember, but this dude goes back to X-Men number 96. Yeah. He worked for Stephen Lang and was thought whacked by Stephen Lang. You just you just wait until we get into the early 300s of Uncanny. <laughs> there is a callback in one of the, like, 312 to a character that was, like, last seen in, like, X-Men number 6. Ooh. Can't wait. Yep, it's going to be a while. So then, uh, he's basically, uh, he's like, look, man, you're in danger. You're in serious danger. We need to go get those kids and get you guys out of here. So the kids are hanging out with the normal humans. Some federal agents come up to them and start kind of pushing them around, telling the other kids to beat it. They got to take those kids with them. Uh, and they're going along with it because they're kids and they don't know any better. They see federal agents and they're like, oh, we should probably, you know, let's listen to some adults. But luckily, Stevie Hunter and Michael Rossi see this. Stevie screams, scatter kids. And Michael starts shooting. So then they... Starts a blasting. Except for stun, of course. Yes. So the new mutants all of a sudden kick it into gear. Start tearing up the place. And the Sentinels appear. Tearing open the roof of the mall. Much like the X-Men animated series. So there's a great Sentinel battle, which is always fun. Sentinels are always cool when they show up. Yeah, Bobby kind of dismantles one single-handedly. Yeah. This is when he first really gets off on his power. I love when one of them freezes. Like, he's got freeze rays coming out of his eyes. Like, come on. Yeah. It's comics. It's awesome. <laughs> and he takes off with, uh... Sam. With Sam. Samsicle. Yes. <laughs> and Shan controls him and ignites his power. And all of a sudden you see this, like, sentinel. If it could have whiplash, it would. Because <laughs> its arm just outstretches and it gets careened away it's pretty awesome and uh 
Sam manages to blast it right down into the other Sentinel. Right? Yep. Is that what happens? The two blast into each other? Yeah. And he takes out both threats, saving the day through awesome teamwork. And when they come home... They find uh, Danny in the danger room. She's freaking out about the monster that she saw. And uh, Stevie starts to put it together. Because she's basically like, well, the only two people who can control the... The only three people who have any rights to control the danger room control panel is me, and I was with the kids. Moira, who's wherever Moira is, with Gabriel Heller, but she doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. So the only choice left is Xavier. So then we get a last panel shot of Xavier passed out with a brood queen, like, emitting from his body. Oh, man. And so they're, they're starting to push this angle a little bit that Danny is, like, losing it. Kind of. Yeah. Like, is she losing it or isn't she? And you you know that she is, but she's not sure that everybody's buying that that like weird things are happening to her that she can't explain, and and she thinks everybody's thinks she's crazy. Yeah. And and we open with that in issue three, X-Men. which is by far Ugh. the best of the three covers of the three issues that McCloud. Um, pencils. I think he continues to do covers after this. I can't remember. But this is of the, the early X-Men issues. This is my favorite issue. She's Danny is on her knees with the, the rest of the New Mutants piled behind her. She's on her knees ready to plunge a knife into her gut. And behind her is a shadowy figure pantomiming the motion yeah. stabbing her. Oh, it's a great image. It's a super creepy way to open up the book, too, because it opens up with this thunderstorm happening around the school. Danny wakes up from a nightmare, and she thinks she sees something from the window, and in the lightning, you see, like, the face of a giant brood. So she grabs a knife that she just has hanging around, like you do. She keep, Hey, she keeps her knife on her, even on her costume, man. She's from the wilds of Colorado. She doesn't mess just around. Just the art of it is cool, the, you know, how creepy it looks, and... And she's attacked by this shadowy thing that crashes through the window and chases her through the house. And she's running to her friends for help. And every room that she crashes into, she finds uh, her friends dead. Yes. Killed in horrific ways that kind of call back to their greatest fears from that, that graphic novel. Yeah. And, uh, like, Bobby was murdered by Juliana. And Sam in a cave-in. Rain was burned at the stake. Yeah. And, um... Shan was killed by the Tide Pirates. Oh. But, uh, so she's she's running for her life, and this thing finally catches up to her. She grapples with it, and she pulls what... She grabs its face, but it turns out it's wearing a mask. When she pulls the mask away, it's a grizzly bear. The bear who murdered her parents. Dude, Come what on. is going on with this bear, am I right? Right. I wish we could find out sometime soon. So everybody basically gives her the old pat on the head. It's just a bad... Because she wakes up in bed. Yep. And they find her screaming in bed, and they're like, Man, bad dream. You should just get some rest. She goes to get some rest, but she grabs her knife to make sure she has it on her, and when she pulls it out of the sheath, it's still got blood on it. Or at least she thinks it does. Because she, when she goes to tell Professor X, now it's gone. And she's like, Am I crazy? 
And she overhears Professor X on the phone with Moira saying, she's crazy. Yep. I love that Moira snaps on it. Yeah. And is just like, this isn't like you. Figure it out. That's right. Little does she know that it really isn't him. Not is it not like him. It isn't him. And then Banshee comes by to try to help her out. And they start talking about the idea of possibly having kids. Because obviously Moira knows that Charles has one. She's a little shaken up because that could have been her. Mm -hmm. And Sean is and has been deeply in love with Moira for a while now. And he asks her again to marry her and says, Have my kids. It'll be great. And she's still haunted by her memory of Proteus, her son. Yes. Who was so, so evil and she had to kill him. So uh, she basically tells Sean, It ain't going to happen because I don't want to have another Proteus on my hands. We're not having kids. So Sean goes to take the old cold shower long walk. <laughs> and he stumbles upon Ileana. Okay, who is, uh, it's really cool because she's actually singing a prayer to what Sean thinks is Kitty, because it's her birthday, but Ileana is actually singing this, like, prayer for Cat from the, cat. The, the Belasco demon. Which, in this miniseries, has not happened yet. Yes. This is, this is total foreshadowing at this point. Now, I do have one question, um... And I wanted to know if you noticed this, too, because I think it's an error. Ileana starts talking about how much she... um, Well, Banshee was basically like, you shouldn't miss the X-Men. I'm sure they're fine, and they'll be back. And they'll be home safe and sound, you'll see. And Ileana starts to think, I wasn't thinking about here and now, Mr. Cassidy, but of the demonic limbo that was my home for half my life, and of the creature who ruled it and me, Belasco. The X-Men were there, too. Some died at Belasco's hand, some died at mine. Now, she's thinking this. It's clearly thought bubbles. Uh-huh. But the look on Sean's face is like he hears what she's saying. So I always wondered, like, well, not always, because I just read it the other day. But yeah. I'm wondering if that was a mix-up and she was actually saying that stuff out loud. Just because of his reaction. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's... There's some room there. He could have just been, you know. There's a beautiful sunrise. True. He could have been. He looking looks at the sun. horrified. <laughs> okay, he does. You can't even see his pupils anymore. <laughs> Sean possessed him. Yeah. But so, yeah, I, that is a good question. That'll go down as one of my great new mutant mysteries. So then we get back to the mansion. Sean's trying to explain to Danny that they don't all think she's crazy. And Danny is trying to shake last night off by taking a cold swim in the pool naked. Like Another you know. connection to Storm, I think. She's she's being laid out as like the Aurora of this group. Yeah. The free spirit, um, not used to living in the white man's world. Kind of. Or and playing by his rules. Right. And dude, she's so awesome. Yeah, I really like her. It's a character that like later on I, I, in the stuff that I've read of her from recent years, I haven't been that big of a fan, but I'm actually really enjoying Danny a lot in this mm-hmm. issue, in these issues. I mean, we both agree that we're huge Cannonball fans, and there was a rivalry when I was a kid reading it. There was a rivalry for leadership between him and and her, and uh, and so I always kind of resented her a little bit because of that, and I kind of felt like she was a little bit of a blowhard. Yeah, but. Um, rereading these issues you're reminded of where she's coming from 
and she kind of is a blowhard, but she takes a couple shots where, you know, she loses her grandpa, and then this whole thing happens, and you, you see the vulnerable side of her, and I think it makes it easier to relate to her and root for her. Yeah. But, um, so, Cannonball's going through a training thing, he... He can't get the hang of turning while he's blasting. He's pretty much just an arrow that gets fired and flies its path. And he's showering after being scolded by Professor X. Yeah. And uh, he, oh, love this sequence, man. He's, you know, kind of reflecting on things, and then there's just a black panel. Yeah, he's like lathering up with shaving cream. There's this black panel, and then he kind of shakes it off. And when he opens up his eyes and looks at the mirror, in shaving cream written on the mirror, it says, meet us in the boathouse. And he Creepy. Is, he is pissed because he knows what happened. Yeah. He knows that Sean must have possessed him. So he goes storming out there, and then the poop hits the fan. They they kind of say, something weird's going on. And he opens the door. He says, I'm going back to the house. And, uh, and he opens the door, <laughs> and it's like Brood World out there. Where they were is now Brood World. And they're like, oh, nuts. So, rather than go running out there, Danny leads him to a secret passage, part of a series of tunnels, oh, which we are going to see explored again in one of my favorite times during the Mew Massacre. But uh, uh, they, they follow a tunnel back towards the school, and they are waylaid by this uh, young brood who attacks them. And it turns out that every time there are one of these attacks, it's this this young brood queen getting into Danny's mind and um, using her power against her. She's able, the queen is able to not just manifest an image of someone's fear, but she's able to manifest a physical representation of that thing and kind of suggests that someday Danny would be able to do that herself like this could possibly be the ultimate manifestation of Danny's power that she can create physical things from her mind that can like attack things. yeah um, so uh, wisely Sean figures out if I can take control of the brood I can I can make all this stop so she tries but she's KO'd in the attempt so karma's power is turned back on her and she's possessed by the brood yes and um, this is my favorite page of the whole run Sam is fighting the brood uh, Danny's wrapped up in this little cocoon and Sean is possessed by the brood and goes to attack them all and uh and Sunspot elbows her in the gut, puts her out of commission, and uh, and just the, the, oh man, I love it. Yeah. Nothing really extraordinary happens on it, but there's just some really great figure work on it. And um, yeah, Bob McLean rocked this page. He did. He rocked it. Man. The, probably the best cannonball drawn in any panel of any any story. But it is in the end cannonball who figures out what's going on and he knocks out danny yeah and that puts the brood out of commission and she wakes up and you get this scene between her and bobby 
um, kind of talking about the situation. And again, it's Bobby who's like bringing her back into the fold, you know? Yeah. And and it ends in the most awesome way with with Sam running out onto the porch and saying, "Hey, you guys coming in? Magnum's on." And which is a direct lead-in to the first page of Uncanny X-Men 167, where the X-Men return home triumphant to seek out and destroy Professor X, which is how we ended the last episode. I hope that episode of Magnum, if they're watching, this is the one with Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker in it. <laughs> Me too. Doggone it. Detroit Tigers forever, baby. Yep. Magnum knows what's up. He does. So, ladies and gentlemen, that does it for our issue recap. But before we go, we have something very special for you that's been in the works since Heroes Con back in June. And I'm so excited and pleased to bring you our conversation with Mr. Bob McLeod. And here it is. Since Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created the X-Men, each generation of fans has had a group of young mutants that were their gateway into Charles Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. We are joined today by a legend in X-Men comics history, a man who made his mark in the X-Universe as co-creator of the New Mutants, which was my group of young mutants and my gateway into the X-Men. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Bob McLeod. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. We are glad to have you here. So, uh, let's see. I figure the best way to get this started, we want to talk to you today about uh, your New Mutants run. Um, but first, I figure uh, we have so many young listeners on the show that might not be familiar with these issues. It's possible that they you know, just haven't had the opportunity to go back and read these yet. And, and if they haven't read these, that means they probably haven't read some of the stuff from earlier in your career. So... Can we talk a little bit about uh, what got you to the point where you were asked to be a co-creator of this new, new Mutants franchise? Yeah, sure. It's kind of a convoluted uh, <laughs> path. I, I started out uh, being a huge fan of Mad Magazine, and I uh, wanted to be basically Mort Drucker, one of the artists for Mad Magazine. And... My style was very much like Mort Drucker's when I got into the comic business. And my first jobs were for Marvel's Crazy Magazine, doing movie satires and uh, the Teen Hulk strip. And uh, I thought that was going to be you know, mainly what I did in my career. But I realized that superhero comics were the direction everything was going in, and there wasn't enough work in the humor uh, magazines to to be full-time work so I um, decided I'd better learn how to do dramatic comics so I started studying uh, John Buscema and Neil Adams and a few others who I felt were the top uh, dramatic comic artists at that time this was in around 1975 and okay. Uh, Mike Esposito um, was an was a, uh, inker at Marvel that I, that I met up at the Marvel office, and he said, well, you know, you could learn to do inking more quickly than you could learn to do penciling. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll give that a try, and discovered I had a real aptitude for inking. It came easily to me. 
Um, so my inking career kind of took off before my penciling career, but I was always doing penciling and working on my penciling. Um, and finally about, uh, you know, it was like five years later, I got a, a try doing um, a superhero comic, Marvel Team-Up 86, with Spider-Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. The thinking back then was um, they always started you out with Spider-Man because they figured he was so good you couldn't screw him up, no matter how bad you were. <laughs> so a, a lot of the, the young artists, um, their first jobs were something to do with Spider-Man. So I did that. That, that went over well. Um, even though it's you know, not a very good job at all, because I was that was my first superhero penciling try. Still had some stuff to learn, but it got me on my way. And not too long after that, uh, that I think that was 1979, maybe. Um, okay. So right soon after that, um, they needed someone to uh, finish up an issue of the X Men that. Jim Sherman had started and for some reason couldn't finish. So he had laid out um, the first few pages and, or he, he laid out maybe half the issue or more and penciled a couple pages. And they got me and Joe Rubenstein to finish the, up the issue. So Joe inked um, the first half of the book. And I finished up whatever penciling needed to be finished up and inked a couple pages uh, myself. And they really liked what I did on that. So they let mm -hmm. me pencil the following issue, X-Men 152. And they really liked the job I did on that. And so they said, well, you know, we need a penciler on the X-Men. Do you want to keep going on the X-Men? But then we also have this idea for a younger team of X-Men um, and you could be like co-creator on that book, you know, so it was a, an amazing opportunity, you know, to choose between those two projects. You know, I was loving penciling the X-Men, but then again, a whole new team um, where I could be co-creator sounded too good to pass up. So I, I chose that one. So uh, in in the early 80s, I know that the um, financial climate for uh, an artist or a writer at Marvel was probably a little bit different than it is now. Uh, were there financial considerations for you as a co-creator of of a of a group of characters like this, or, or was it just uh, bragging rights kind of thing? It was more bragging rights because that was kind of the beginning of the royalty uh, system. Uh, they didn't used to pay royalties, and then uh, shortly before that, they started. Um, but I really, I wasn't thinking, boy, I'm going to get rich now starting up this, <laughs> this new series. Uh, there was maybe something in, in the background. I was thinking, well, maybe I'll get some money out of this. But that, I, I wish I had known <laughs> how much the royalties were going to be on that book. I would have stayed on it longer. Sure. So, let's see, uh, before we get into any details, you were... You were on the book for the graphic novel, which we definitely want to talk about, and the first three issues of the book um, as penciler. Um, you inked the graphic novel yourself, correct? Yeah. Uh, were there arrangements originally that you were going to ink the, the issues as well, or was that always planned that someone else would do that? No, I wasn't fast enough. What, ha what happened was uh, 
the New Mutants was supposed to be a, a comic book series, but it debuted uh, right around the time they were starting up the graphic novel line, and they were mm -hmm. looking for new projects to turn into graphic novels. So they said, "Hey, let's let's take the New Mutants and and make it a graphic novel." And I said, "Great, you know, sounds good to me." But <laughs> the schedule they had for the comics. I was going to be way ahead of schedule on the New Mutants and uh, pencil and ink the first issue and do a great job on it. And then they turned it into a graphic novel, and that was like twice as many pages, and the schedule was totally different. So suddenly we were a month behind right off the bat. Oh, boy. So I was racing through um, trying to uh, get the job penciled, and... Coincidentally, at the same time, I was getting married, so a lot going on in my personal life and yeah. my career, and got to um, the wedding, and they said, look, we're, we're just too far behind schedule. I need to get somebody else to ink this, and I said, oh, no, no, you gotta, I, I really got to ink this myself. I really want to ink it myself, and um, they said, all right, but you, you got to do it like right now. We got we to gotta have those pages, so... I ended up having to work through my honeymoon, um, oh. which was not, not that bad because we had a, a month-long honeymoon on the beach. So it wasn't like we were oh. doing a lot of traveling. We were just kind of hanging out on the beach. And um, my wife was very understanding. and uh, I, But I was racing through that job as fast as I could move the pen. Um, really not my best work because I, I just had to rush so fast. Well, it's surprising to hear because we both <laughs> really enjoy the book. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, this is something that goes back to, I think I read this for the first time when I was maybe 10 years old. Sean's actually just read it for the first time. And I mean, yep. he's he's a bit younger than me. He's 33, but and has always been an X-Men fan. For some reason, never read this. Yeah, what's but, Sean? Uh, what, Sean? What's the deal? I, I, I don't know. I, I think when I got into the books, uh, it was one of those. Um, I I got in, in late ninety or in the early nineties, and so it always seemed like um like it would have been my older brother's X Men. So there was this part of me that was like rebellious against. I mean, I love the characters, and I and I thank you very much for creating Cannonball because he's definitely in my top ten. X-Men of all time, so I will fall on my sword and say that I'm a big dumb idiot for not reading this earlier, but I was telling Jerry the other night that I really appreciate the fact now that I didn't read this because having the ability to read it with fresh eyes now is really nice because it reminds me exactly why I loved the X-Men when I was younger, so it's nice to have this nostalgic, brand new feeling at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, thank you. Well, um, I, I'm a little jealous that you get to do that, but I still wouldn't give up having read this as a kid ever. It's ever, true. Ever. <laughs> because it was one of my favorite things of all time. So how old were you when you first read it? Uh, I was, I think I was about 10. Um, I, I wasn't buying comics on my own at the time when it came out. I probably wouldn't have been able to afford it anyway. But um, I think the first New Mutants comic I ever read was a Bill Sienkiewicz issue. And uh, one day I saw this on the shelf, uh, just kind of, I mean, graphic novels weren't really a huge thing at that point. So it was the first one I'd ever seen. And I was like, what the heck is that thing? And <laughs> by then I had enough nickels to scratch together that I could buy it. 
and uh, you know, finally got that that origin story of the characters that I've been dying to see. Because I, I fell in love with the characters immediately from the first issue, even though Simkevich's stuff was so weird looking to a little kid like me who, you know, reading my my older brother's stuff that, that was more mainstream looking. Uh, yeah, that was a shock, but I still loved the characters. Yeah, Bill's Bill's work on, on the New Mutants was a shock to everybody because it was so different from what had come before. And a lot of people hated it, uh, but a lot of people loved it. And I, I think it grew on people uh, pretty quickly after he stayed on the book for a few issues, but it was it was a shock for everyone when he when he first debuted. I'm sure it must have been challenging. I, I mean, my memory's a little fuzzy of it, but uh, yeah, there wasn't anything else like it on the shelf, really, unless you count Moon Knight. Yeah. So earlier in the show, we discussed uh, Marvel Team-Up number 100, which was the first appearance of Karma. And I, I know that you inked the backup story in that issue, which was uh, the first time that Storm met the Black Panther, mm-hmm. uh, which was a cool little story. Um, and it looks great. Uh, but my question to you is when, I, and I don't know if you'd remember this far back, but when they brought the character of Karma into the Marvel Universe, did they have plans for her at that time? And were there any discussions with you on what might happen with her? No, as far as I know, uh, that was not in in the plans for the New Mutants at all with Karma. I think that was just... Uh, why did they bring her? I don't, I'm not even sure why they brought her into the, the group, except they were looking for international characters rather than just, you know, the standard white white guys, mm-hmm. white Americans. So they were looking for um, just different characters, and, and they liked her. And also, Chris knew that he was going to kill one of them off early on, so he didn't want to create a new character to kill off. He wanted to, to have someone that already existed. Wow. Yeah. I, that's the first I've ever heard of that. <laughs> well, why don't we why don't we get into the mechanics of putting this thing together? How what was the who was involved in the early stages of developing this property? Well, the editor Louise Simonson, uh, I think she might have been Louise Jones at that time, um, mm-hmm. and Chris uh, were the ones that started the the ball rolling and and had the idea to go back to the origins of the X-Men and uh, have them be young teenagers. Because that was the idea of the book of the X-Men when it first started. And then they kind of quickly aged and, and um, got away from being teen superheroes. Um, so they wanted to, to have a book before, basically before somebody else, another publisher, beat them to it um, and had... Uh, a, a team of young mutants, they thought they'd better create a book um, with a younger team of, of uh, mutants trying to learn to use their powers at Professor Xavier's school or, or wherever. And So they had, they had the idea for the book, and Chris started working on some ideas for characters before they ever approached me. Um, I, don't, I don't, as far as I know, they didn't approach any other artist before they approached me. Um, the timing was just... Uh, Right at that time, um, when they were ready to look for an artist, I, w- I was available. Um, mm-hmm. But Chris already had uh, a few names written down and some ideas for ethnicities and um, characters. 
And then when they brought me in, we started talking about it a little bit more in depth and uh, trying to decide who we wanted to use and who we didn't want to use and um, what they might possibly look like. Um, you know, were they going to use, were they going to wear school uniforms or have individual costumes? Um, all the all the things, the decisions that we had to make to to get that first issue um, looking good. So. Um, a lot of it was done before I came on board. I, I was mainly brought in with visuals, but um, also, you know, Chris and I talked about it quite a bit, and it, it was my idea to have more females in the group than males, um, mm -hmm. because every group that I knew of uh, up to that time had more male characters in it, and the females were more token characters. Um, and I really enjoyed drawing girls, and I just thought it would be nice to, to, for that, to have that difference. Well, it's, it's to this day still a, a topic of worry among female fans that there aren't they aren't represented enough in comics. So kudos to you for doing that. You you mentioned that you discussed characters uh, who you were going to use and who you weren't going to use. Were there any characters that ended up in the Marvel universe uh, or that had already existed in the Marvel universe that you discussed using that ended up showing up somewhere else? I think there probably were, but it's just too long ago, and I don't remember, unfortunately. <laughs> you need to talk to Chris, because Chris would know for sure. Um, nobody, I mean, nobody comes to mind, but I'm sure there must have been, because I remember we had a couple other ethnicities that we rejected. Uh, like, uh, Rain Sinclair was originally going to be Iranian. Uh, oh, you know, with a different name, of course, but um, we were going to have an Iranian werewolf, um, and I forget why, maybe because um, Chris just thought the werewolf fit better with Scottish, I I'm not sure, it's too <laughs> long ago. Okay. So, uh, did you, you kind of suggested that when you first started working on the book, you thought that the graphic novel was going to be issue one and two of the series is that right or did you when you started drawing did you know it was going to be graphic novel format at that point no i had already drawn maybe the first i don't know two or three or four pages before we decided to make it a graphic novel and it's not like uh chris had the first two issues that he turned into the graphic novel he rather he just expanded the first issue um so so he kind of just the way Chris writes anyway, he puts way more story than you could possibly jam into a single issue when he writes a plot. So you're mm -hmm. always editing out stuff. So I don't think it was that big a deal for him to just kind of expand it out to 50 pages from 22 or however many we were doing at the time. Um, you know, cause his plots are pretty overblown to begin with. And he said, he's always said he'd rather give you too much than not enough. So he doesn't mm -hmm. mind you, editing out some stuff um and it, you know i never i never threw out stuff without saying hey is this important <laughs> you know you know sure but it was obvious what stuff you could uh kind of trim or edit down with without any trouble um so so once you learned that the the format was changing to this um larger issue with uh you know bigger pages better printing quality better color um 
did that change your approach at all or did you just was it business as usual for you you know i i wish i could say it changed it but uh as i said the, the deadline was a huge thing and this was some of my first penciling this was my first regular penciling assignment and i was still kind of learning what i you know what my approach was what my style was so I was just mainly concerned with being able to do visual storytelling and have it make sense and um, get the pages done, basically. I was, I was rushing so fast on that job, um, which is why I eventually left after that third issue, the pencil, because I, I just wasn't happy with my work. I was, I was having to rush, rush, rush so much. Um, and I just wasn't, I needed time to think, you know, to lay out pages. Uh, sure. And I just wasn't getting that time. So it's, it's a big regret of mine. And the, the editors at the time uh, have told me, you know, look, in retrospect, it wasn't fair to me to, to throw it at me that, like that because I wasn't able to do graphic novel style art on it. I was, I was basically just doing comics. Um, mm -hmm. Not that there's a huge difference, but I would have... I would have done some things differently if I'd had more time to think. Uh, maybe some more uh, panoramic type page, maybe double page spread type stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe some things more uh, designed for the full color. Um, sure. It's stuff I just didn't have time to think about. I think it looks great. I don't think it looks rushed at all. <laughs> oh, I don't either. But I completely understand. But. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's the kind it's of such stuff, a unique. It's the kind of stuff book. that I think you would have to be an artist to understand the potential that was that was lost, maybe um, to understand how it could have looked different or, or better in certain ways than it does. Um, I mean, it was. It's a professional quality job, I, I hope, and. Um, it's not that I'm ashamed of it. Uh, I just I, I see things that I, I could have done so much better. Um, okay, that's all. Sure, well, understandable. I understand that as a professional, you, you, yeah. But uh, please don't ever feel ashamed of these books. <laughs> In the uh, the opening sequence of the graphic novel is kind of our introduction to Rain Sinclair, where she almost literally runs into Moira McTaggart. And um, when you did this, was it an intentional callback to the beginning of Giant Size X-Men number one, you know, where she's being chased by a mob in much the same way that Kurt Wagner was when Professor X saved him? Or is it just coincidence? Uh, again, that would be a question for Chris because, um, as far as I know, I I was not thinking about about that at all. Chris might have been deliberately doing that, um, but I wasn't aware of, of it. If he was, okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to come on here to stump you. I did enjoy reading it the first time, like how well everyone was introduced and how quickly the group is like put together. I just enjoy that more than uh, what happens today where everything's kind of decompressed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just loved... I, that was one of the favorite things I enjoyed about the graphic novel was showing the backstory of the characters and, and how they came to 
be put together. That that was fun. You mentioned you're a fan of Cannonball, and he's my favorite New Mutant. And I think because uh, I deliberately made him so much unlike uh, a Superman type character, where he was supposed to be kind of gawky and and awkward and um, had these big ears and uh, you know the, the last guy you would expect to be a, a superhero. And that that kind of came out of my Mad Magazine uh, background uh, with with doing caricatures rather rather than uh, stereotypical comic uh, characters. So I, I really enjoyed creating Cannonball. Yeah, he's my he's, favorite too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you mentioned when you mentioned before that your first penciling gig was that Marvel Team Up '86. Um, I recently reread that for another podcast that I was a guest on. Um, and I, I hadn't realized it at the time that that was your first penciling gig, but uh, that I, I thought that was a great looking book too. And um, I noticed there was one of the villains in the book was there was the the pair um, Hammer and Anvil. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're roped together by their wrists and they shared a power, or some crazy thing like that. But um, that that Anvil character bears a striking resemblance to Cannonball. I thought. And I, I didn't know if that was just kind of a, a stock lunk that you had in your head or if, or if you kind of pulled from that experience, maybe. Interesting. No, I've never thought about that. Um, I guess it was subconscious. Um, just, you know, that, that character type appeals to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I heard an interview with Rob Liefeld recently when, when he kind of relaunched the New Mutants as X-Force. And he, he was really critical of Cannonball. Um, the, his design, how like he's not the kind of super heroic character, and and he didn't like that, and he wanted to make him more heroic, and I it just left a bad taste in my mouth because yeah. the approach that you took towards this team, I don't think you know Bobby was always kind of um, he wanted to be heroic, and he he was macho and stuff, but they were all kind of you know just I mean you actually told us their their physical characteristics they're, for the most part very short very slight very young uh none of them really heroic so um for him to see that as a, a detriment was really disappointing to me because that made them more engaging to me as a young reader they were more like me yeah it's nice to hear that that was the whole idea um to to have a group of uh, kids with these powers and to have them be normal people, you know, just just average guys like you go to school with, rather than the stereotypical uh, strong-jawed heroes, um, we deliberately, I, I particularly deliberately tried to make them individuals and not stereotypes. And it was depressing to me that uh, as soon as I left the book, that kind of went away because um, that was one of one of the big things that appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about some of the changes that I, I've heard this on other interviews? But do you want to talk about some of the changes you noticed right away? <laughs> uh, I, I I just like hearing you say it. I don't I don't want to spoil. <laughs> I really kind of quit reading the book after I left. I, I would I couldn't help seeing it uh, and occasionally, you know, look looking through it. But I didn't want to know what all was happening to it because it, it just irritated me uh, that, that they were making these changes. I, like I felt that they, they too quickly went away from the school and started doing super heroic stuff. You know, I, I thought the book should have uh, stayed more 
in the school uh, for a longer period of time where had them just uh, doing their lessons, learning to use their powers more and, and, and uh, the personal problems that they would have uh, with their families and their friends and, and what have you, instead of just making them another superhero team. Um, you know, and then was it, it was years later, uh, I, don't, I don't remember, one of the miniseries they did of the New Mutants uh, I looked at, and they had Roberto the same height and build as Sam, and uh, even his hair wasn't uh, that dark anymore. I mean, they, they could have been brothers, and it, it just... <laughs> It's ridiculous, you know. Why yeah. can't why can't they just keep the original concepts of some of these books and and instead of just making everything the same? Uh, I I think it just shows a lack of imagination. Um, and I I don't know. <laughs> this you know the business is frustrating to me a lot of the times uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, I I think so many things like this uh, would be better left. Uh, with the original things, like did Spider-Man really need to get married? You know, couldn't he just stay a high school kid? Yeah, things yeah. like that. One of the things that I really appreciated about the book, going back and um, reading it, was um, I, I like the human element, and I feel like that's really missing in the books today. Like, I like the fact that the the kids in the New Mutants interacted with other kids from Salem Center. Like, yeah. it wasn't they weren't completely segregated. They were able to go around town and hang out with the kids. Like one of my favorite scenes in the issue two is when they're at the mall and running into those other kids. So exactly, I appreciate yeah, that, that kind of stuff is what I think they should have kept doing more of. Um, I think that's what really attracted people to the book in the beginning, and I'm, I'm not sure why they departed from that. Hmm. I have to admit, though, the one thing that I did like that I felt changed over the years is I truly feel that Cannonball was the only X character ever with the ability to grow. Like he feel I believe he was the first younger student to ever actually graduate to become an X-Men. I mean X-Force whatever. Oh, you mean like he was allowed to grow. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which I appreciated the fact that he's now like a full-fledged X-Men. It's nice to see that progression. Mm -hmm. It's just unfortunate that it doesn't happen naturally anymore. Uh-huh just seems like a popular character gets thrown into another book while the rest are all left behind. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Once, once in a while, I think that's great. And I think the idea was originally to have all of the characters kind of develop in, in a way like that. Um, so, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Um, it, it's just the abruptness uh, that they do it with sometimes. Uh, yeah. But I thought Cannonball's evolution has been... Uh, very interesting, and uh, also uh, Danny, uh, the way she's gone through her Viking uh, warrior <laughs> princess kind of thing. Um, uh, different things they've done are, you know, often very interesting and fun. So I don't, I don't have a problem with it. But um, if if they're going to graduate Sam and and turn him into an X Men or or whatever. Um, you know, bring in another character and uh, ha have some other teenager dealing with his problems. Um, I, I think they could have just kept this, the school idea going uh, with the New Mutants instead of maybe following those characters on their adventures. Yes. 
So this this formula you guys have tried um, or successfully accomplished, where your book was very successful, um, but it's been tried several other times where creators have uh, tried to bring in another batch of young mutants to kind of act as the um, the gateway for for young fans into this franchise, uh, and I think they've all kind of fallen flat for the most part. So, um, having done it successfully, what do you think your advice to that next writer and artist who who give this a shot? Uh, like, what would you tell them how to make it, how to do it in a way that would be successful and engaging for fans? Yeah, it is tough. I'm not. I'm not saying it's easy. I think timing has uh, just simple timing when the book came out had something to do with it. It's, I can't, you know, if we had done the New Mutants a decade later, maybe it wouldn't have been as successful or a decade earlier. You know, timing always is important. Mm -hmm. Um, Chemistry between the creators uh, is important. A different writer, different artist, maybe just don't click as well. Um, There's all these variables that go into it. it. It's not like you can say, okay, well, this is how you do a successful book. You do this and this and this. You know, uh-huh. there's there's luck involved and there's just chemistry involved. Um, so I don't I don't know if I could give someone a blueprint for it, um, but I would say you just have to have characters uh, that you can see some potential in for growth and for change, and um, you have to care about the characters like. I think Chris and I were really into these characters and uh, thought of them as as people that we would like to know and, um, you know, invested ourselves in them. Uh, I think you have to uh, be able to, you know, get close to these characters and and not uh, just look at them as properties. Would you say, (laughs) I was thinking of this earlier, but uh, speaking of... um, liking the characters and, and wanting to see them develop. Would you say that um, Danny was Chris's favorite? If I had to guess, I'm guessing Danny was Chris's favorite. Uh, she definitely was kind of the star of the book at the beginning, so mm-hmm. um, possibly. I've, I've never really talked to Chris about who his favorite was, if he had a favorite. Um, fans, I've heard fans ask him that, and he always says, the one I haven't created yet, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> which to me is a cop-out, but, you know, I, I'm sure he enjoyed uh, writing Danny, and I, I enjoyed drawing her. She was my second favorite uh, of the characters after Sam, um, you know, but I'm, I'm not sure you'd have to ask Chris. Hmm. Well, based on the way she's featured in the book, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna answer for him that she's the favorite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because she was wonderful in these early books. Um, and I, I really do feel like she's the one that's gone through the most character development too, over the years. Well, you, you um, probably are, are have got something there. She she probably is his favorite. But I don't know if you could get him to admit it. <laughs> So uh, when you when you sat down and started writing these stories, um, did you kind of flesh out um, what their story arcs might be in the future? And you know they were all kind of uh, fledglings in the use of their power, um, kind of half understood what they were doing. Um, did you have a concept of what them as a finished product might might look like and what 
future revelations there might be as surprises for for fans of the book or, or were you just uh flying by the seats of your pants at the time no um i was not that involved in the writing that's that's mainly chris um but i don't think he writes that way either i think he kind of makes it up as he goes along uh, from mm-hmm. what i've witnessed in his writing uh he'll he'll develop a plot line that kind of just he just kind of drops it and, and goes somewhere else uh, because I, I don't think he does that much long-range planning. Uh, now, he might disagree. Uh, you'd have to ask him, but from my impression, uh, I, I don't think he writes that way. And we certainly didn't uh, get together and discuss, okay, Sam's going to go this way and Danny's going to go this way and Rain's going to do this. Um, you know, at the, at the time, uh, it, it was all... I think Chris was under pressure to write it quickly as well, and um, we were all just, like you say, by the seat of our pants. I'm, I'm looking at the cover of issue one right now, and um, this sort of seemed always, as as a young reader, this kind of epitomized the dynamic of the team to me, but the cover kind of features um, the four youngest characters in the foreground kind of running away from a floating head of Professor X, and then... <laughs> Tucked in the back, way back is karma, which is you know a result of of the perspective, of course. But um, it kind of seemed like the other four characters were a feature of the book, and she was already starting to recede into the background. <laughs> that that probably just had to do with um, who I enjoyed drawing the most. Sure. I wasn't sure. that into um, karma, and I, I really liked doing Danny and Sam. Um, so I, I kind of probably featured them more prominently for that reason. Sean has mentioned that of all the characters on the team, Sean was the one that scared him the most. And if he was Professor X, he probably would have offed her. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. she's too dangerous. Her, her power is way too out of control. I would not like the possession part. <laughs> so you mentioned that there were discussions about killing off one of the characters was she the one you had in mind or that chris had in mind yeah i think i think from the start he was planning to knock her off okay and he he's he's definitely took her out of commission later but uh death by obesity i guess was the the end result (laughs) okay I, i wanted to work my way back to that because i didn't want that to go unanswered Sean, say something cool. Well, (laughs) I know that when I first started reading the book, the one question I did have was how to pronounce Karma's first name as I was reading the graphic novel, but then it was answered later on when they spelled it out as Shan. Yeah, Shan Koi Man, is that her name? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was thankful for that. A lot of people mispronounce Rain's name, Ronnie or whatever, but it's Rain Sinclair. That one I luckily had a handle on as a, as a younger kid, but Shan always confused me. <laughs> uh, Rain was probably my second favorite, being a young Scottish lad. Uh-huh. I always thought she was just so adorable and innocent. Couldn't get enough of her. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed drawing her. I tried to make her look like she was shy and inhibited, and um, yet she had a. I tried to give her a fuller figure so she would like be kind of embarrassed to have this sexy body because of her religious attitude. And um, then I've tried to make Danny more flat-chested and and not 
voluptuous at all because I, I tried to give each one of them an individual body type just to again to make them more like real people instead of stereotypes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that, I think that was a perfect decision with rain because yeah. I, I mean you you notice it instantly not to be a creeper <laughs> but, <laughs> but you do notice that she is more full-figured instantly and you know with her personality that that's got to make her uncomfortable um, and you guys definitely played into that wonderfully. So um, good job. <laughs> and, and I always loved her ruddy cheeks too, you know, which is uh, definitely a Scottish characteristic. How about Ilyana? Were, were there discussions while you were still on the book about what her future with the group was? No. Um, Amara and Ilyana um, were not on the radar when I was working on the book. Um, I think um, Chris might have already been thinking about them, but uh, we didn't talk about them. That that was not uh, part of, of my experience on the book. Okay. Um, so so after you um, uh, surrendered your penciling responsibilities, you did stay on as inker for a few issues. Yeah, that was my decision. Like I said, I wasn't happy with my penciling. Um, I just was really frustrated ha- at having to knock out pages so quickly. Um, and so I got, and I wasn't happy with the inking. Um, Mike Gustavich was kind of a beginning inker at the time, just like I was a beginning penciler. And mm-hmm. my inking was much more developed because I had been doing a lot more inking than penciling at that at that point. Um, so I really knew how I wanted the finish to look more than I knew how I wanted the underlying structure to look. And I just decided maybe I could have more control over the way the art looked if I took over the inking instead of the penciling. I figured, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whoever penciled it, I could make it look the way I wanted it to look. Um, cause I was, I was really confident in my, in my inking. So, uh, that's why I switched over to inking from penciling um, and then brought in Sal to do breakdowns for me. Uh, so that worked pretty well, except that Sal was a um, the kind of penciler who was doing two or three books a month. Um, yeah. Really kind of the, he penciled kind of the opposite way of me, very much more in the stereotype school of, of penciling where he would do the same types of poses and uh, the same types of uh, uh, figure, you know, his faces were more like the, the school where they would just put a different hairstyle or hair color on someone to make them look different. You know, they have the same, uh-huh. same basic structure, which is fine. You know, that, that's a, that's a way of doing comics, but it's just wasn't the way I did them and do them. Um, and so I really just tried to, um, take his raw layouts and draw them the way I would draw them myself rather than trying to ink his pencils. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was doing breakdowns, so that was the idea anyway. Um, but I, I departed quite a bit from what he was doing on the book. Uh, I, I noticed that in the first couple that you inked, you were credited as a finisher, but then that changed to being credited as an inker. Uh, were you doing 
had your approach changed at that point or was it just um just words you know <laughs> what have i tried to say yeah it's just words that's just the editor not really uh, what's the word <laughs> not really caring <laughs> enough not really thinking enough to to appreciate the difference between an inker and a finisher um mm -hmm. you know inking to this day is, is is kind of a mystery as to what the inker does a lot of people really don't understand it um and at, at that time too there is a big difference between finisher and inker but it, it just wasn't appreciated the way it, it should have been so they they just didn't care um because the, the Sal, the same thing Sal was doing issue to issue. I was doing my same thing issue to issue, and I should have been called a finisher, um, but you know, that's comics. It's a business. <laughs> so for those who 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 it is a mystery to, um, th I think this is a really good illustration of what an inker brings to a book because you penciled and inked the New Mutants graphic novel. So I mean, that is your creative ideal seen through to the finish and, and then you penciled the the first three and i think um you can definitely tell that that it's that's you that penciled the book but um the inks aren't as lush as, as when you did the graphic novel and, and um it's no slight to gustavich but uh, he just wasn't the inker at that time that you were uh but i think when when sal was penciling the book and you were inking his layouts um i think the those pages really stood out to me and and once you left and and you were replaced with someone else you could immediately see a difference in the quality of the book it just didn't pop the way it did when you were inking it um so for those who are wondering what we're talking about look at that run of the first 10 issues and you can see what bob brought to the book yeah you know Inking, the business of inking has changed, the art of inking has changed over the decades. The pencilers in the 70s and 80s used to be much looser um, and didn't try to draw stuff that would be traced by an inker. They, they wanted the inker to uh, have some input and, and contribute to the art. Uh, you know, it was, it was a different job back then than it is now. Um, and I... I brought a lot of my penciling knowledge into my inking, so I would add things to other pencilers that I inked uh, that, that uh, weren't had nothing to do with their art. It was my art that I was adding to their art. So you get mm -hmm. this nice blend of both artists, um, whereas today so many inkers aren't given that uh, ability. That, they're not able to do that because the pencils are so tight. It's it's a shame. It 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 uh, you you lose that magic that can be created when you get two artists working together um, in, instead of one artist just kind of uh, trying to be as faithful as possible to the other artist. What do you think the contributing factors were to that change in the industry? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, my theory is when I, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when I was uh, doing a lot of my inking, there was only a handful of top inkers. There was Tom Palmer, Joe Sennett, Klaus Janssen, Dick Giordano, Joe Rubenstein, myself. Um, and it's kind of hard to think of that next name. 
so there was like a handful of us that were inking the top books and um, I think that the fans reading those comics were studying our art and weren't aware that we were adding a lot of stuff to the pencils that wasn't there in the pencils. And so then as they grew up and entered the business as pencilers, they thought that all that, all of that rendering and lighting and everything needed to be in the pencils. So mm -hmm. their pencils, their pencil samples were much more uh, finished and tight than the generation before them. And at the same time, there were, there were a lot of uh, people entering the, a lot of inkers entering the business that didn't know how to draw and needed right. uh, more help because they, they had, at the same time, the pencilers were coming up, these inkers were coming up uh, thinking, hey, there's a career called inker that I can be. You know, I don't, I don't need to know how to draw. I can just ink, <laughs> which, sure. is, which is a fallacy, but that's, that was their thinking. So they were entering the business uh, being able to put down a really nice, uh, nicely controlled ink line, but they had no idea where to put it or what to do with it unless the pencils were tight. And so the ink, the editors had these inkers that couldn't draw, and they had these pencilers doing these tight pencils, and they started uh, being afraid to give certain jobs to certain inkers because they didn't they knew the inkers wouldn't know what to do with them, and so that led the ink the editors to um, prefer the pencils to be tight, which you know kind of what they call bulletproof, so that the inker couldn't mess them up. And so it was a combination of these things, I think, that led to tighter and tighter pencils. Okay. So the, the list of names that you gave of, of the inkers of the time that were kind of at the top, they all had one thing in common. Um, and, and that was, I think they were all crusty bunkers. Is that right? <laughs> um, well, not, not Joe Sennett and not Tom. Oh, of course not. Uh, sure. Not Dick Giordano. I mean, Dick did some Krusty Bunker stuff, I suppose. Um, I think what we had in common is that we were all, or a lot of us were young guys uh, coming up, and we were all fans of Neil Adams and hanging out around Neil's studio. And really what the Krusty Bunkers were was just anybody that came into Neil's studio that felt like doing some inking. Um, it, really, it was a fantastic opportunity for me and if other people too to um, be able to ink on these pencils, kind of under Neil's guidance, although he really didn't uh, tell us uh, much guidance. He would just say, "Leave the main figures for me, and you guys work on the backgrounds and the and the secondary figures." Um, but just watching Neil ink and Russ Heath was there in the studio, and watching him work and Dick Giordano. Um, was very inspiring and educational and, and it was a great way to learn man i i just can't even imagine <laughs> that must have been so cool looking looking uh, back you know i kind of took it for granted because i didn't know anything else at the time but looking back it's amazing uh it's a fantastic opportunity it seems like um the the big art studio like neil adams operation doesn't really exist anymore in that form you know like there there isn't that opportunity for the the upcoming generation to to kind of work under the master like that 
It's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a shame. Um, I, I know other people have tried it from time to time, um, but it's you know, Image Comics did that for a while. Um, uh, the guys that cross gen tried to get everybody in the same room to kind of feed off each other, and uh, yeah, but there wasn't really a uh, controlling force uh, like Neil Adams and, and Dick Giordano, who were kind of running continuity studios. Mm-hmm. Well, lucky you. Not jealous at all. <laughs> <laughs> there is not that I could do anything. I feel very fortunate. It was it was wonderful. That that was a a neat little tidbit to learn about. I just wanted to make sure that everybody who maybe hadn't heard that story got an opportunity to because man, the, you look at the list of of people who who were under continuity doing work for Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. And it's just a literal who's who of comics creators in the seventies and eighties. It really was awesome. Well, you got to give Neil a lot of credit. Neil um, is very generous in helping other artists um, always has been and still is. He really basically started me on my career. Um, I was getting nowhere knocking on doors at Marvel and DC trying to get started. And, um, Finally met Neil and showed him my samples, and um, he he looked at my work and he said, "Well, well, what do you want to, what do you want?" And I said, "Anything that pays." You know, I was I was desperate to, <laughs> to get a job at that point because I had moved up to New York to try to get into comics and was not getting anywhere, and I was going to have to um, like take the bus back home. To, I was I'm from Tampa, Florida originally, so I, w- I was right on the verge of giving up and going back home when I met Neil. And he just picked up the phone and got me a job in the production department at Marvel Comics, which got my foot in the door and started me on my on my way. So, you know, I have Neil to thank for my career, and and so do many others. You know, Frank Miller got his start getting critiqued by by Neil, and uh, would make several trips back to Neil's studio to get a new critique and and uh, learn his craft, and just so many of us. Uh, learned uh, and got our start through continuity studios it's cool very cool sean any any uh no okay well there was one more question i wanted to ask and it just left my mind because i was so engrossed uh, one more thing story. about the crusty bunkers um the neil neil would get the jobs uh knowing with the companies knowing that he would be kind of overlooking them to make sure that they maintained a certain level of quality but um other than that they they knew all these other people were going to be working on them but the jobs were assigned to neil adams so we got neil adams page rate so all us beginning uh inkers who were working for peanuts uh suddenly would get the top inking rate in the business working on those crusty bunker jobs that is sweet that's nice that's the the one thing I've I've always really enjoyed hearing about him is the the positive things he brought to artists in the industry at the time you know kind of elevating them from that starving artist position to uh, something that resembled a career. Yeah, because he came out of advertising, uh, and you know was was used to getting some respect. <laughs> And so sure. he tried to elevate the comic industry to the standards of, of other art forms at the time. And he's main he's the main one responsible for us getting our original artwork back as well. They were just uh, 
throwing out in the trash and um, you know giving it to friends and stuff until Neil came along and, and said, "Hey, wait a minute! I want my original art back." Yeah, that's sad. <sighs> Thank you, Neil Adams. Yeah, I love that guy. No kidding. <laughs> I did have a quick question about issue number two. Um, being a kid who grew up and my first experience with the X-Men was through the animated series um, from the early 90s, the uh, first episode of that has the Sentinels coming after the X-Men in a mall, and I noticed that in issue number two, as I was reading it, that happens to the New Mutants, and it felt like that first cartoon was an homage. But I noticed... Um, in that page, there is a comic book store inside the mall called the Fandom Zone, and it stuck out at me because it seemed so prominent. Was that possibly a local comic shop that you went to, or were, or was that just kind of thrown in there? No, that's very good. Yeah, it was the local Tampa comic shop, the Fandom Zone, and the owner of that, uh, I drew into that mall scene. He, it's the big close-up down in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, that's Tom Bowles, the owner of the Fandom Zone, and it was not that that mall was based on the Tampa Bay Mall at the time. It was a it was a new mall uh, in Tampa, and I went down and took pictures of the mall to draw from. Uh, and his store was not in the mall; it was at a separate located little strip mall okay. somewhere. But I I just threw it in there uh, as you know a little thing for him. Excellent. That's so cool. I. Yeah, I tweeted you a couple nights ago about the the close up of of uh, of him, and uh, turned out you and your wife as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that is that page two, Sean. Um, it is for those who are curious. Page five, seven, page seven of of New Mutants number two. There's a, you're you're kind of in the foreground and you're in red. Yeah. <laughs> as the as the New Mutants are coming into the building, and there was so much detail in those faces, I knew that they had to be. Either you or people that you knew. Yeah, and nobody but um, my friends would know. But I also drew my in-laws. They're they're the old couple right in the center, down in the background of that page. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, what a guy! That's my mother-in-law so gave me such grief about that drawing. She's only like what a quarter of an inch big, and she was upset that it didn't look more like her. I think it looks exactly like her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what mother-in-laws are for, giving you grief. <laughs> yeah, I'm I sure time, she appreciated it. When I had time, I used to draw uh, some friends and, and did some of my artwork. Um, but usually I was way too rushed to worry about likenesses. Oh, that's what all my comic friends tell me all the time. They're too busy. Yeah. Maybe someday. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we're at a point where we could wrap up. I, I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> because I've certainly enjoyed talking with you. Well, good. I've enjoyed it too. Um, it's fun to reminisce about about those days. Um, do you want to catch us up on some of the stuff you've been working on recently? Are you doing any comics book right comics work right now? Yeah, you know, I, I consider myself kind of retired from comics because um, I've been doing it for so many years, like forty years, and I have other interests and don't don't have the same drive to do comics uh, that I used to have. Uh, so I don't really look for work in comics, but occasionally stuff comes my way. Like last year, I penciled and inked an issue of X-Men Gold. Uh, yes. 
various artists that had worked on the X-Men in, in the past. They got to, to do that issue. And then uh, just this year, uh, I just now finished a little 10 pages that I penciled and inked of Spider-Man. Uh, it's for Spider-Verse Team-Up number one, which will oh, be out in a couple nice. months. I hadn't heard this. Yeah, that's I'm exciting. Gonna have to seek that out. Yeah, so that was fun. So, and I've done occasional covers. I'm working on a Star Wars cover for Marvel right now. Um, things you have some experience with Star Wars, right? <laughs> that's why they asked me to do the cover because I was one of the original uh, Marvel Star Wars artists, and they just got the property back. So they're having us do ah. some alternative covers. Okay, so is Chaken involved in this too? Probably then. I don't know. I haven't talked to Howard about it, um, but possibly. Um, I would imagine Simonson's doing one. Um, I, I don't know. They didn't, they didn't tell me who all's doing them. Okay. Well, awesome. I look forward to that as well. Yeah, but mainly right now I do commissions for fans, and I yes. teach part-time. There's a, a, college, a Pennsylvania College of Art and Design in Lancaster uh, where I teach uh, a class or two every semester. Um, and I go to conventions and I do school visits occasionally, uh, talking about my superhero ABC book, uh, for the students. So I'm yes, can we talk about that for a second? Because I, I have that for my kids and they absolutely love that book. <laughs> they love it. My son read it last night, as a matter of fact. Well, I was kind of inspired by my mother-in-law. She was, she was someone who grew up kind of snobbish about, uh, books and reading and looked, always looked on comics as trash and wouldn't let her kids read comics when they were little. So my wife, uh, you know, when she met me, I'm sure her mom was just horrified that she was going to be married to a comic book artist. <laughs> and so she was always telling me, well, you know, why don't you do political cartoons instead? Or, or why don't you do advertising? Or you just something, children's book, do something besides comics. And even though my comic career was going great, you know, and I was, I was doing well as a comic book artist, she just was never sold on comics. So I, th I started thinking, well, yeah, I'd like to do a children's book. Um, and when my comic career started uh, not winding down, but it, it started getting a little bit more difficult to get comics work, um, I looked around for what else I could do and um, decided to do a children's book. And I thought I would do something other than superheroes because, um, you know, I, I, I like to do all kinds of, of stuff, uh, not just superheroes. But I was trying to, I couldn't decide what exactly, what kind of children's book I wanted to do. And my wife just finally got frustrated with me dragging my feet so long. She said, why don't you just do a superhero alphabet book? You know, so much about superheroes. I said, superhero alphabet book? That's a great idea. I said, why didn't I think of that? And, you know, surely somebody else has thought of that, uh, but looked around and there were no other superhero alphabet books. So I said, I better do this before somebody beats me to it. <laughs> and your avatar on most of your uh, your social media is, is from that book. Is, is that right? Yeah, I did a little picture of myself uh, for the back cover jacket. Um, not trying to be a, a real good portrait of myself, just kind of a cartoon version of myself. Awesome. Awesome. You're awesome. <laughs> comics are awesome. Thank you. And for, for all the mother-in-laws out there that think comics are a waste of time, little story about my seventh grade English teacher who saved 
<laughs> comics for me because my mother went in concerned that all I ever did as, as a seventh grader was read comic books. And my teacher told her, as long as he's reading something and getting something out of it. Exactly. That's all that's important. Exactly. Right. You know, comics are a great way to uh, introduction to reading for reluctant readers um, to, to get them to sit and read instead of looking at a screen. Uh, I think comics are fantastic for that and don't get enough credit for uh, inspiring people to read. You know, once you, once you get into the habit of getting enjoyment from reading as opposed to doing something else, you're going to eventually turn to books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Which I did in my case. But I'm, I'm just uh, a little disappointed that now that the comics code is gone, there aren't more titles geared towards young readers like I was when I was reading your book. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah. I think that's missing from the industry these days. You can find them, but they're not as prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was a downer note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, when I when I got into comics, um, I, I had never planned to make comics my career. I was going to either try to get my own newspaper comic strip or work for Walt Disney or something because um, I liked humor and I liked um, just all different kinds of drawings. I was never that big of a superhero fan. And um, when I got into business, there were all these different genres. There was monster comics and sci-fi comics and romance comics and westerns, um, kung fu comics. I mean, you name it. And the, all these were top-selling comics. Um, and then the, the business kind of started getting more superhero-oriented and darker and adult. Um, it, it really took a turn that I wasn't really into um, is another reason I've, I've kind of gone away from the comic book business a little bit because it's not the same business I got into, you know, back in my, in my youth. And, um, it's not really all these dark, violent superheroes is, is not my cup of tea. Yeah. It seems like we're in, in a market now where, um, independent comics are as strong as they've ever been. And there's a, a slow movement away from the superhero comic type. Um, and there, there's more opportunity for creators to control their own intellectual property um, and, and publish the stories that, that they're interested in writing. And there are fans that seem interested in uh, consuming that kind of media. So have you ever given any thought to, to trying something independent? Yeah, sure. I think that's fantastic. Uh, just in recently the way that the business is expanding. I think graphic novels have had a big part in that because they got us into bookstores uh, where Barnes & Noble didn't want to carry comics, but suddenly they would carry comics that were square bound and called graphic novels. Mm -hmm. Well, those like, you can put on the shelf, <laughs> Yeah, which is a big plus. Yeah, so it's expanded the audience back to the general public instead of just the comic geeks that would go into comic book stores, mm -hmm. um, which was a fantastic thing. It's brought uh, females back into the audience more um, with new stories that appeal to girls as well as, as guys. Um, not that girls don't like superheroes, but they also have um, just, you know, more generic uh, tastes sometimes than the guys do who like all that punching out <laughs> other guys, you know. <laughs> testosterone yeah that's right 
so I think it's great that the the market is expanding back to the general public, and um, I've thought about doing some creator-owned stuff, but I'm so busy. God, I'm so busy doing other stuff. I just don't have the time. Well, if it's something you have the time to do and you decide you want to do it, I'm here for you with my money. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> you just let me know, and I'm there. Okay. Well, what I'd like for you to do is make a million dollars and finance my project for me. I'm working on it. Okay. I promise you. I did buy a lottery ticket on the way here. <laughs> oh. I think we're in good shape. We've got a good feeling about this. All right. This could be the one. <laughs> we'll give you a call on Monday once we find out that we won. Okay. I'm ready. I'm saying we. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, so do you, would you like to let our listeners know where they can find you on the Internet? Yeah, sure. I'm on Facebook a lot. Uh, you can find me there. A lot of my stuff's open to the public. Um, I've got quite a number of friends, so a lot of times people have told me Facebook won't let them friend me. Yeah, I'm in that boat, too. Yeah, well, if you'll send me a private message and, and beg a little bit, I'll go ahead and friend you. I've got some. Yes. <laughs> All right. And I also my have a website, uh, bobmcleod.com, um, where you can see a lot of my stuff. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, so I'm, I'm easy to find. And you have sent us some, um, some art, some original art from uh, the early days of the New Mutants that we'll be posting on our Tumblr. And I just want to put in a plug for these commissions that you mentioned that you still do because your stuff is wonderful. Anybody is going to get their money's worth out of the commission they get from Bob McCloud. I highly recommend it. Jerry has a cannonball that I'm quite envious of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. So we thank you for this, your time on this Sunday morning. Thank you. And um, if we ever have any other questions, I'll be begging you for another conversation. All right. I was ha happy to do it, and I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll talk to you next time. So there it was. Sean, what do you think? Pretty good interview? Yeah, it was awesome. It was great to talk to him. I can't tell you how nervous I was to do yeah, that. I witnessed it. You were pretty <laughs> nervous. <laughs> I mean, in case you guys couldn't tell, Bob McCloud is absolutely the nicest man in the world, and there's no reason to be afraid of him in any way. But... um. I'm sure you've all experienced it at a convention where you're faced with someone who was like the guy to you when you were a little kid. And even though I'm a grown man of 40 years old, it still leaves me tongue-tied. So I apologize for my tongue-tiedness, but I hope you enjoyed that interview with, with Mr. McLeod and, and um, some of my enthusiasm for this book has rubbed off on you. And you're going to run out there and, and go get Marvel Unlimited or go get one of these trades and, and experience these issues for yourself. Yes. Go in the Wayback Machine before there were 15 X-Men titles when they were adding a second book. Oh, my gosh. And see if you feel as good as we do. Yeah. And who was your favorite New Mutant? Yeah, tell us, man. We want to know. Yeah. As soon as you find out. Some of you know already. Alan, Steven, all you old guard. It's true, Alan is my favorite mutant. <laughs> Until then, spend some time on our Tumblr. 
Yeah. We put some really good stuff on there that we're proud to share with you. Some stuff you maybe haven't seen before. Lots of original art from the book. Um, and we always try to bring you some cool pinups from artists who maybe aren't X-Men artists, but do cool X-Men commissions. Um, Bob has given us some original pencils from these first three issues that he thought people might dig seeing. We're going to put those up there. So that's greatexpectations.tumblr.com. Come visit us on Twitter at GXPod. We've got our Facebook group that we're admittedly not very active on, but whenever uh, Dan Pua comes on there and puts some funny yes. bit, we make sure to comment on it because we love him for it. It's true. Uh, and I think that's it. So, Sean, we've done it. Another issue in the books. Yeah. Next time, we're on to the next graphic novel in the series, God Loves, Man Kills, with another special guest, or even two, maybe. Yeah. Oh my god, what could it be? Who could it be? Tune in and find out. Until then, bye. Goodbye.
Sean, are you ready? I am ready. I am ready. I think. I'm very nervous. <laughs> we've we've done um, a few interviews with creators on the show, but um, never with someone that uh, was a childhood idol of mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, thanks very so much. It, you're welcome. This episode has been brought to you by Cry for the Moon Productions. Cry for the Moon.